Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Hello and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG. Episode 18 is upon us. Huzzah. BFG, huzzah, huzzah. Halloa, halloa. <laughs> you ejaculated that very well. <laughs> we haven't had a halloa in a few stories, have we? We haven't. I don't think so, no. I, I can't recall if there's any in this time around, but uh, maybe I wasn't paying attention for certain uh, words like that. Well, how are you doing, pal? Uh, it's it's uh, doing pretty well. It's a dreary kind of day here in Ottawa, Canada. Uh, it's uh, uh, how can I put it? Um, just there's a mugginess in the air, and it feels like it's going. It's very damp, and it feels like it's going to rain all all freaking day. Well, I I, I, I feel like Holmes on on two two one B just sitting there contemplating what they're going to do. What what what, what you know? He's just going through some experiments, r- reading some old Sanskrit script or something, and mm-hmm. just trying to figure out what he's going to do next to alleviate his boredom. Well, I don't want to rain on your parade. Um, oh. No, sorry, that's the wrong expression. I don't want to bring rain to you. But I, I've got to say, I remember last episode I had said that we had a nice stretch of weather in the late yeah. spring and we've got another good stretch of weather here. We've had a few days of rain since we last did a show. But I tell you what, man, Scotland has been enjoying some nice weather, at least here in the southwest, which is very, very strange. Very strange for us, yeah. That's very strange because I, I'm, I am not on the island. So that's very strange how you got that kind of weather. Um, Without your presence. Actually. Yeah, exactly. Or your mother's presence. Hmm. Well, I tell you, buddy, it's, it's been nice. Uh, and I've, I've been, for one, enjoying it. But this is the last episode, well, correction, it's not the last episode of our program, we're almost there, but it's definitely the last episode before my trip to Canada, and then we're going to have some fun, we're going to do some live podcasting, it's going to be a blast. Yeah, that should be interesting for sure, up at your manse that you've rented uh, just down the road. Well, if not a manse, then, you know, it's nothing like a a voice recorder in a pub. There's no copper beaches, that's for sure. Mm, Well, not with that dog, I hope. (laughs) And, uh, that that's the um, that's that's the fine print that you didn't read about on the lease uh-huh. or on the on the rental agreement. Indeed, um, you know I I, I want to talk about something here at the get go or just out the gate. Have you heard? I'm sure you've heard uh, Donald Trump's plan to put Marines into space. I have heard that plan, I, and that that was and that reminded me of Moonraker and Hugo Drax, and you also sh- sh- shared that feeling with me at the same time. It's funny, you know. I'm starting to get, and you know, I should have figured this out a long, long time ago, but I'm really starting to get a feel now for how this guy operates. Um, it seems to me like his whole MO is getting himself in the hot water and then making an announcement that's so 
shit bonkers crazy that people will forget that for a while and they'll go on and then he just he just travels from one tumble roll to the next doesn't he he really really does yeah and in a way it's kind of funny i kind of feel like back if it was like sherlock holmes era you know like late victorian england i think i think trump could easily be like some american like dignitary quote-unquote uh visiting london up to no good and and holmes would would would, would be on his track would, would, would be on his case or whatever i can I, totally see him being an adversary of sherlock holmes i don't see it well okay fine but holmes would have quite an easy time picking apart trump what don't you think yeah but then you have scary alec kushner as like his henchman and 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 hiding everything and obfuscating everything indeed yeah. Well, look, and Watson would be taken by Ivanka, and 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 and, and <laughs> he would be too. Yeah, he'd be si- he'd be sizing her up, wouldn't he? Yeah, Melania um. too. <laughs> Do you know what'd be funny? Like, I just thought about this: who would play Trump in a film version of Sherlock Holmes meets Trump? Alec Baldwin. <laughs> that came out quick. You've been thinking about it. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of, man. Have you seen his SNL impression? It's pretty, yeah, pretty on 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 point. Yeah, yeah, but you know how like there was the the, <clears throat> the Basil Rathbone did the the Sherlock Holmes and the I don't know what. Uh, you're, you're talking about like a classical actor. Yeah, 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 like, exactly. Yeah, I'm trying Trump. to think like that. Okay, um, I don't know. Like uh, you, you have to probably get an American like actor, like a character actor, like Charles Lawton. No, he's too dignified for that. Maybe Orson Welles with like a orange toupee or something. I, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, Joseph Cotton. Joseph Cotton, yeah, that would be a, that's a good choice for for sure. Could he do that though? Could he do the the smarmy sort of? Well, I know he could do smarmy, but could he do the the really silly? Do you know what I mean? Like, could he could he get there? I think he could do it. Yeah, I, I couldn't be. I wouldn't be surprised. You Cary Grant even to an extent, or no? Yeah, Cary Grant as as Trump. Yeah, he just puts on the wig or whatever and. I don't know. I, I, I'd it, love it to see that. A, but it would definitely be a turnaround role for him, that's for sure. It would be a turnaround role. Maybe Orson Welles is is a good shout. Um, how yeah. about how about Brando? Oh, now you're yeah. Now you're getting good. Brando would, would definitely be a good choice. Even like a James, even like a young, even like James Caan, even um, would would be a good choice for him. Okay, right. So let's follow this diversion for one more minute, and then we then yes. we'll get then we'll get to the show. Yes. So okay, we've got Brando in the role of Trump in. A classic Sherlock Holmes meets Trump. You know, like like the doesn't have to be the Hammer one with Peter Cushing. I'm thinking Basil Rathbone and you know the ones that he did for RKO or or where we got yeah. we got uh, Sherlock Holmes meets the Wolfman, like those types of ones, right? So yeah, sure. Sherlock Holmes meets Trump. We've got Brando in the role of Trump. Who's going to be your Sherlock? Hmm. It can't be any of the the existing or pre-existing actors. Okay. So maybe there'd be someone in that era then, right? Because you have Brando. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so I would say someone like uh, I was thinking. I'm just going to remember, Peter Sellers, may, maybe. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. He, I don't know, a bit too comical. I, he could pull it off though. Uh, he could. Uh, maybe he could. Someone, oh, he could pull it off. Peter Sellers could do it. Yeah. Roger Moore. <laughs> oh wait, he's already played Sherlock. <laughs> he's Holmes. already played. Yeah, he's as, already as, played. As Holmes. Maybe a, a younger, even though he played him uh, an older Holmes in uh, in the Murder by Decree, I could see a, a younger Holmes played by uh, Christopher Plummer as well. Plummer, okay. Yeah, he'd be my choice. Even though he was in that Murder by Decree, we haven't seen a younger 
plumber as Holmes, though, and I, I think that would be pretty cool. I tell you who I'm going for. Okay, I'm going Sh- Shatner. No, no, not Shatner. I'm going for John Williams, who's a character actor. Do you remember he played in uh, in the Hitchcock film Dial M for Murder? He was the yeah. killer. He was the killer. Oh, you're thinking of uh, Anthony Dawson. Oh no, that's right. I am. I've got that screwed up. John Williams yeah, no, was the inspector, wasn't he? Yeah, no, no. Anthony Dawson as uh, Holmes is actually an excellent choice. He's a great creepy character actor, I and of course, Bond connection. He was Professor Dent and Doctor No. That's right. Let's go for him. Let's go for him yeah. as Holmes in Holmes Meets Trump. And Watson would would be who? Oh, that's a good question. Jack Lemon? I don't know. Richard Burton. Of- Oh, yeah, Richard Burton as Watson. That would be great. But would he ever take a second fiddle role? Mm. Well, he make Watson he make Watson his own. I can't see him being... <laughs> he could, but I can't see him being second in line to Dawson. Maybe Oliver Reed? That is an excellent shout. Okay, yeah. this is working out really well. So we've got Trump, star, uh, played by Marlon Brando. We've got Holmes, yeah. who is... Uh, Dawson, Anthony, Dawson. Anthony yeah. Dawson, and then we've got Oliver Reed as Watson. Who are who yeah. else are we missing in this? Michael Caine could also be a good Holmes as well, or a good Watson. Michael yeah. Caine is actually another. Choice he was, too. but he already was Holmes in. Um, oh without, yeah, without a clue right. or without a without a clue. Maybe that without is a, it. Without a clue, I think it is. Yeah, I forgot about that. Even Gene Wilder has also been used up too. That is uh, fun. Hey, if you got any good ideas out there, people, send them in to us. Uh, let's hear your thoughts for uh, you know contemporary or classic cast of Trump and uh, Sherlock Holmes, or Sherlock yeah. Holmes meets Trump. It has to evolve like time travel, maybe, or mm. time travel. Hmm, I don't know. Ah, good fun. Right. Well, hey, we're not here to talk anymore about that. We've got three stories remaining in the penultimate collection of stories. His last bow. How do you feel? about these three my friend i am a fond i'm very fond of uh two of the stories one of the stories i found and 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 when and the show will determine how uh you know how i felt about that particular story uh not a huge fan kind of uses a lot of things we used before and kind of just random uh in terms of how the story turns out um but uh overall i the last couple stories weren't bad could you by any chance, be speaking about the disappearance of Lady Frances Carfax? I might be. Mm. Well, why don't you give us some publication information on that, and we will launch ourselves into a plot summary. Oy vey. All right. So, first published Strand Magazine in December 1911, also in American Magazine, December 1911. Uh, that's basically the publishing history of that, and as we know, this was all collected into his last bow at some points. Goodreads, people, uh, they have their say, of course. Uh, absolutely fascinating. All mm, right. That's a good review. Again, yeah. I, again, I find myself asking if Doyle invented the trope. <laughs> I wonder what he's referring to. Mm. As always, I'm impressed and totally in love with Sherlock Intelligence and the amount of information he contained and have in his head. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point that up to probably English, not second language, a first language there. So, yeah. Too predictable and not a or bad grammar, or spelling. Too predictable and not a good plot. It's not Holmes's best. It seems to be a mockery of his ability. This story didn't need Holmes to reach his conclusion. It could have been done by Watson alone. Wow, that's quite a um, statement there. Mm-hmm. But that's what people the Goodreads have to say. 
What does Scott have to say? Oh, sorry. What does Bowman have to say? Uh, I, I accept either name. I answer <laughs> to many things. What do I have to say? Well, the plot summary of this story will take us off the continent, or sorry, off to the continent, and then back again to old Blythe. Here we go. The jewel-bearing spinster gone missing. Watson let off the leash for a Swiss reconnaissance. Holmes nears 100 on the misogyny charts. Yet another Australian criminal doing his post-colonial, not to mention gothic, best to exploit the sensibilities of the foppish English elite. Just a few takeaway taglines for this adventure. Those Aussies. Yeah. The story opens with Watson returning from a trip to the Turkish baths, an excursion which Holmes finds only too easy to deduce. This trite and by now customary scene leads naturally into the presentation of two first-class tickets and an opportunity for Watson. Feeling rheumatic, are you, pal? Well, how about heading off to Switzerland on a little mission for me? Oh, what's that? Me? No, God, no. Last time I nearly died, remember when I went there? Besides which, I'm far too busy here. You know how it is, boy. Once I leave, the city falls apart. Nope, Lestrade couldn't do without me. And so on. You see, it appears that one Lady Frances Carfax, a middle-aged but upper-class, rich in jewel but fading in beauty, socialite spinster has gone missing. Her old governess, Mrs. Daubney, with whom she conversed on a regular basis, hadn't heard from her in over five weeks. Dull as it sounds, Holmes must see something in it or he wouldn't have taken the bait. Or maybe it's below his station but could serve as a simple case for his loyal sidecar partner. Every dog likes a bone, after all. Either way, he festoons Watson with the responsibility and encourages him to hit the continent in pursuit of the missing woman, following the few breadcrumbs available, hotel registries, bank transactions, and her last reported acquaintance of Dr. Schlesinger and his wife, missionaries from South America. It'd be great to think that Holmes was diversifying his practice here, trusting his friend to try on his own deerstalker while waving the Holmes banner abroad, but we soon see that that's not the case. Still, that's okay. I'm happy to go with this, you know. The prospect of Watson on his own is appealing, and I'd be lying if I said that I wasn't excited to follow the good doctor on this Swiss sojourn. Last time it happened, remember, we visited Baskerville Hall and fell eagerly into the thickness of what is Doyle's masterpiece. Only, here's the thing. His trip to Switzerland is so lame as to be nondescript. Watson could have been down the road from 221B for all that the setting is evoked. His voyage from London to Lausanne is as transitory as it is ephemeral. Two days later, found me at the Hotel National at Lausanne, where I received every courtesy at the hands of M. Moser, the well-known manager. Seriously, that's it? That is it. So much for the travelogue. Travel, so boring, so boring Mm. nowadays. Oh, isn't it just... Anyway... You go right from the station to the hotel, and you see the sights, and and then then you're done. And you're done. Well, Watson doesn't waste much time in getting to the first suspect. A leads to B, and B stands for Baden, where the... At the Englisher Hof, yep, this is as foreign as it gets, folks. Even the hotel is named The English House. Watson learns that another guy is looking for Lady Carfax, too. A rascal, a savage, identifiable by his beard. Conveniently, hero and villain come together almost immediately and were gifted with some of Doyle's worst dialogue in the canon. Even for Watson's impetuous nature, it is void of character and inspiration. I quote, You are an Englishman, I said. What if I am? He asked with a most villainous scowl. May I ask what your name is? No, you may not, he said with decision. The situation was awkward, but the most direct way is often the best. Where is the Lady Frances Carfax? I asked. He stared at me with amazement. What have you done with her? Why have you pursued her? I insist upon an answer, said I. Ugh. 
Does it feel like the writing is desperately wanting to pass over details in this scene to get someplace else? Well, that's because... wants to pass something, that's for sure. That is because it is. Just as Watson and the Savage are about to WWF the town square, a French... (laughs) A French ouvrier in a blue blouse comes running from a cabaret and reveals himself to both men. Yes, of course, it's Holmes. Well, an explanation comes an hour later in the hotel room, but it's not a fully satisfying one. No need to paraphrase it for you. Striding in full dickhead form, Holmes openly denigrates Watson's efforts in saying, quote, I cannot at the moment recall any possible blunder which you have omitted. The total effect of your proceeding has been to give the alarm everywhere and yet discover nothing. Presumably, Holmes never had much faith in his pal to begin with. It's tough to read that scene without asking the question, why the hell is Holmes in disguise? Like, seriously, it serves zero purpose. It only draws out the oddity of his presence there in the first place. This story is marred by a significant lack of purpose so far. Some of the scenes are very good, but the pathways leading to and connecting them are all very weak. Either way, we know enough to guess that Watson won't be getting the keys to the car for the weekend. The bearded man turns out to be the Honourable Philip Green, a wealthy suitor of Lady Francis's, with a spotted past. I don't go looking for spicy details, though. Zero are shared. We're just meant to understand that the two have some sort of a history, but in spite of her own affection for him, Lady Francis could never admit her love for a man with a wild past. Yeah, okay, just go with it, gentle reader. (laughs) Nevertheless, Green and Watson apologize and presumably get chummy as the three men return to London, where Holmes suspects that Schlesinger has taken Lady Frances. For reasons best kept to himself, namely the details of Henry Peters' sordid, nefarious past, Sherlock fears that if the spinster isn't already dead, she soon will be. Oh yeah, didn't you catch that? That Australian Schlesinger is actually Henry Peters. Stay tuned. Just in the nick of time, as we're about ready to cut bait on Lady Frances, a more boring, beautiful lady never existed in the canon, Doyle surprises us with a reversal of form, comes, and really saves this story in a way. You see, in London, Holmes puts out various feelers and confirms not only that Schlesinger is Holy Peters, and back in London, but also that he started pawning off expensive jewellery that matches the description of Lady Frances's own dragon hoard. Holy Peters, you see, beguiles women by preying on their religious faith, sort of like a televangelist, and once he squeezes them dry, he drops them and disappears. Whatever comes first. Holmes activates Philip Green as a plant near the pawn shop, and in a couple of days, he's rewarded. He follows the strange woman from the pawn shop to an undertaker's office, where part of a strange conversation is overheard, pertaining to something, quote, out of the ordinary, and an address in Brixton, home of the study in Scarlet Murder, you may recall. Oh, yeah. Well, when Holmes learns of this, he sends Green to the police to fetch a warrant, and with and Watson back on the leash after his Swiss misbehavior speeds to confront Schlesinger directly. Near the end of a forced speech, Holmes locates an oversized coffin, but inside is the body of an old, decrepit woman, not a middle-aged Carfax. Peters tells Holmes that this was once his wife's nurse. That's pretty freaky in itself. Why the hell they'd need to pick her up from a workhouse so close to death and after so many years apart as anything but normal, but Holmes and Watson are forced to leave empty-handed when the police show up and sympathetically send them both away. Peters is left laughing at the failure of the great Sherlock Holmes. Never fear. Our hero gets his own back in the morning, when the buck finally drops and he sees the forest from the trees. He rushes Watson out of Baker Street and across to Brixton, where he, insure, when he, where he ensures that the coffin is not removed from the house for interment. Unscrewing the coffin lid, they find Lady Carfax inside and near death after being chloroformed. 
Holmes scolds himself for not recognizing it sooner, but the key to unlocking the mystery turned out to be the out-of-the-ordinary snippet of dialogue that Green overheard at The Undertaker's. You see, it pertained to the size and the depth of the casket. Oddly enough, while they were happy stealing her jewels and burying her alive on top of an old biddy, Peters and his wife were too squeamish to murder the woman neatly. Well, I guess it's comforting to know that these creeps have some moral compass, even if it's fucked up beyond reasonable compare. Like burying people alive, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, easy way. <laughs> yeah. As is tradition, Watson succeeds in reviving Lady Frances with his Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. doctoring, and the lady is saved. <laughs> Old Biddy gets her funeral, but the baddies get away. Part success and part failure. Slimy Australians. Well, in conclusion, the accidental flip of expectation here keeps this tale slightly afloat. Had the story kept up its rhythm from the start, it wouldn't have been easy to recommend this one. You see, what should have been an exciting continental journey for Watson, train journey with chocolate, beer halls, and hosen, it actually turns out to be a pedestrian damp squib, narratively speaking at least. Not a lot of interest brewed up here for me. And yet, the palpable intrigue of Philip Green's street smarts in London, Holmes and Watson's blunder sans warrant in Henry Peter's house, and the time-ticking funeral pursuit that finally exposes the criminal naivety, they do work nicely in tandem to help save the story from its own flavorless start. Uh, That's a good summation, sir. And I agree with you full-hearted on all those points. I found the initial story just kind of really... I was first trite, as you said, with the whole opening sequence with him guessing, doing, doing the guessing deduction game again, making Watson look stupid. And then, oh, it's Tim Watson on an adventure. This might be actually be interesting. We're in Hannah the Baskervilles territory again. And no. And then we go to a ridiculous uh, change again. But I found that even though I found it kind of, I don't know, uh, silly, I did like the whole coffin trick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, like most magic, but, but like most magic tricks, once you see it and you know how it's done, it's not very impressive afterwards. That's right. Well, should that we light was, our pipes? I think we've already lit them with the with the burns that we're hanging, we're, we're throwing <laughs> down here. But well, uh, we are throwing we, some burns. We have enough fuel from that. But um, yeah, I'll take a light of the old Toby. Okay, what are you on today, my friend? Uh, the old Toby. The old Toby. Well, any uh, particular the, variety uh, of tobacco? The it's the Hobbit special, bacon special. Right, well, I'm going for some McClellan Black Shag here, just old-fashioned, good old Persian slipper-smoking tobacco. Well then, you go with your uh, popular uh, iconography uh, regarding pipes then. I'll go with with my Tolkien pipe. I don't recall calling this out at all yet in the, in, the, in our series of 18 long episodes. I don't remember smoking the McClellan, so it's it's yeah. a first for me. Oh no, I was just being bitter that you had that you like you researched a really like a famous brand of tobacco and uh, I didn't. So I tell you what, just, I, d- I didn't actually research it. What happened is I was getting uh, just looking through my book uh, to see how far back my notes went. Uh, for my recent PRI at work, anyway, just a review of what I was doing at work, and I came across it. So I wish I could say that I researched it, but it was actually something from a while ago that I that I discovered. Anyway, I'll, I'll just uh, I'm just thinking about uh, Sherlock Holmes and Trump again right now for some reason. Um, I'll take another. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll take a puff of the pipe for sure. Well, how, how would you feel about a little bit of Mozart here as we're uh, as we're going through this disappearance of Lady Frances Carfax pipes? It would yeah. be. It, it is against. I understand. It's a little unorthodox. It's not really what we do. But Mozart is sunshine after all. And you say it's a, a gloomy day there. Yeah. Music to vivisect by. 
<laughs> yeah, sure, okay. Well, my friend, perpetrators, investigation, principles, environment, and secondary players. I think you, re you I think you reverse that though. It's principles, did, investigation, perpetrators, um, environs, and uh, supporting players. Did you want to do the perpetrators first? I mean, we can swap the P's for the P's. There's no problem. No, no, we don't. And here's another P for you, you pedantic prick. We don't have <laughs> to. Uh, we don't have to swap anything. Okay. Yes, I did. I did make the mistake, but the acronym hasn't changed. It's true, as I said. You can swap it, and then nothing changes. So right. it doesn't make so a difference. Right. So what do you want to do? You want you want to just launch into this, buddy? You go first. Perpetrators. What's your shout? What's your call? From principles, you mean? Uh, yes, thank you. I, yes. We'll just end this Abbott and Costello routine right now. <laughs> Who's on first? What? Who's on first? Yeah. Um, yeah, the principles. Um, I wanted to give this a four. As soon as we got Watson into Europe, I was really hoping it would turn out that way. But they squandered. Doyle squanders uh, Watson in, in, in Switzerland and, and, his, and, his, and his Europe trekking. Uh, so... And then Watson becomes useless again by the end of the story. And Holmes is just at his usual, I, I guess, best. I guess you could say. Um, I did like the, him figuring. I did like the, kind of like him being going outside the box and and putting things together and realizing that she could be in the coffin. I kind of like that actually how that was executed. It was it was actually for the most weirdest part of the story. It was to me it was the best executed written part of it, <laughs> which is kind of which is kind of um, amusing and, and yeah. ironic. I agree with you. To what we've been discussing. And so, I'll tell you why I like that part as well, just to, to, to piggyback on your comment. Um, and this will save time, I guess, when I go to chat. But I, I do agree with you. I think that was a really clever thing to do. And if you notice it, like what I like about it, it's a very human thing. This isn't a massive calculation. It's just shit. It just kind of hit him. You know, he had like one of these moments where, oh, right, that was yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's, it's like Ar Ar it's like Archimedes jumping out of the bath. Eureka! I found it. Right. So I mean, but that happens, doesn't it? Like you could be thinking does. about something really hard, but the minute you walk away from it and take some space, that whatever it is you were searching for will come into your mind. And there is that sort of feel to that. I know it's convenient, and God knows we've accused Doyle of being convenient in a lot of these narratives recently. Like this is just quick fix. This is just an easy, lazy solution. But you know, this kind of works because it feels like Holmes is he's actually critical of himself he's frustrated with himself for for this uh what he what he describes as uh, kind of a waning power you know yeah i still think joyle was uh doyle definitely was not driving stick on this story he was in full automatic cruise control here and i feel that um despite you know i like the fact that he tried to include watson even though it was not to be the way that we wanted it to be um I did. I did like the twist ending, uh, but if I did. I did find Holy Stevens that he couldn't, and uh, the, the, the idea of him and his creepy wife seemed like really something they could explore a little bit more. So I, I was disappointed we didn't get a full, better picture of them. But they were kind of fun villains in their own way. I know we're talking about the principles, so I'm just going to go back and just to say that um, I just I just like the inclusion of Watson or the attempt to, and Holmes was you know he was good all the way through as he usually is and he was a dick and all that kind of stuff but it wasn't remarkable so mm. i'm going to stay with 3.5 as my final score for the principles yeah 3.5 is the exact same mark that i went for too i'll just plug this into the uh, supercomputer here your 3.5 3.5 is my mark beep, as well beep, 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 uh, i liked but, i liked the attempt it, it was nice to see that you know we might have had a good story here with watson uh, but Watson is treated like shit, and 
ultimately he everything falls into his lap and it's all it's so boringly told we never get his impressions of the city we never get his impressions of uh sorry not the city the train ride like we don't know anything that goes on it's just like switzerland is is literally like a you know just a little holiday weekend away and I don't know, it just disappointed me a bit because the travelogue episodes we've seen in this canon earlier have been really, really smart, you know? Yeah, it's true, it's true. And just to, I guess we can kind of bleed into the investigation now, which is kind of what we're doing. Well, hang on, I um, want to say a few things about Watson I picked up from my annotations I thought you might find interesting. Oh, okay. Um, just a couple of things before we go on, yeah. The reference to Watson's rheumatism, okay? Plus some other clues... Now, God knows what other clues those are. This is Les Klinger's edition that's uh, suggesting these other clues. Help what are many the Sherlock's up to now? Well, they, <laughs> Sherlock. Many, sorry. many scholars agree that this story helps to put Watson at 50 years of age. Okay? Now, given the current, or sorry, the contemporary life expectancy, Watson's got about another 20 years to live. Right? Now, according, that's, that's according to Whitaker's Almanac. But hmm. in today's... If this was Watson today, he'd have an extra 13 years to live. So life expectancy now is 83. Life expectancy then was about 70. Oh, good for him. Now that is a point that nobody really needed to hear, but I wrote it down for some stupid reason. Hmm. I guess it was... Oh yeah, I realize now I know why I'm looking at it. It was an appeal to you. Can you find any evidence that suggests, apart from the fact that he's got rheumatism which doesn't need to be a middle-aged thing, but often is, I guess. Any clues that suggest he's 50 years old? Who, Watson? Yeah. He's been widowed once. Um, so he, he would have got married probably him as because he would have served the army. He would have served in the army as a doctor. So he would that would have that put him in his, in his 20s at least, right? Like in his t late teens, 20s. And he served for a couple of years, Afghanistan. So he'd probably been to a campaign or, or so. So you're looking at probably mid-20s, maybe late 20s when he maybe hooked up with Holmes, or even early 30s. They need to look about how long he worked with Holmes. This is 1897. They've already been working together for, what, about 10 years now? Or, well, I, well, a study in Scarlet does give us some firm dates of their age and stuff. And do you know what? It's, it's funny. Like, we, we, we navigate very close to the edge of going into Sherlockian territory and then coming it's out true. again because we're so critical of it. I, f I feel like a kid who kind of like runs up to that neighbor's house and throws pebbles at the window and then runs away. Or like, you know, <laughs> I feel like I'm not brave enough to put any any of my uh, research or credentials on the line. But I, I'm happy. I'm happy from a distance to make fun of them. <laughs> but I'm not happy. I'm not happy enough or, or brave enough to go right into it and say that, yeah, this is stupid. So there are people, even as we're speaking now, I realize that there are people who have spent their careers uh, chronologizing the canon and these characters in their lives and they've got the dates and everything but I was just a little struck by the, the I'll say flippancy but I guess the uh, just how quick that annotation claimed that he was 50 years old here like I didn't see any fucking evidence of that you know what's funny that they call themselves Sherlockian scholars and while I, I like Arthur Conan Doyle and I like Sherlock Holmes stories as a whole I, I enjoy them very much so and I like the world and, and the world building, that early kind of type of world building that we normally don't see in, in, in literature, I guess, at that time. I find that in the end, Sherlock Holmes, Sherlockians, it's just like a comic book fandom to me. And to call these people scholars, I, I don't know, is kind of ridiculous. They're no more a scholar than a comic book guy talking to you about uh, 
Uncanny X-Men issue 221 or something like that. I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, it, it's almost like because this phenomenon is older and Victorian and was printed as literature, not graphic art, that it somehow is more upper class, you know? Exactly. Anyway, I got a, I got a good note here, though. Um, and that, that's not to diminish anything Doyle's done, by the way. Bold statement, I, I know, but uh, not, and like, like you said, we're not trying to diminish it. But uh, I just think sometimes in terms of uh, it's no different from any other fandom, in my opinion. No, it isn't. It isn't. You're right. And it's, it's wrong of, it's it's wrong of me to, to criticize it. Yeah, it's, it's Trekkies. Really. It's, it's Trekkies before Trekkies, if you think about it. Yeah, and maybe because I haven't had an induction to those worlds. Like, I'm having a great induction into the Sherlockian world through our reading, our exploits, and obviously reading the annotated Klinger every time I read a story also helps me see what other people think. And that strikes me as crazy because I'm not a fandom guy. I certainly have my favorite stuff, like you do, but I don't think I go into, like, that type of surgical detail with it. I like what I like, and I like to explore what I like, but I, I don't, I don't know, like... It really fascinates me, the whole idea of fandom. And some of this Sherlockian stuff is uh, very interesting, but also so just just so so much guesswork involved just for the sake of placating or publishing. You know, it, it's really weird to me. But anyway, I, I want to read this note, okay? Uh, yeah, it has to do with Holmes's bizarre behavior. And I think this is definitely worth reading. It's only a short note before we move off from the principles. And if we discuss a little bit of the assessment by this guy, ben, Benjamin Clark... Um, okay, so this, this has to do with that, that time where, well, I'll, I'll just read the part, okay? Um, this is where Holmes appears in Baden and criticizes, in Baden or Lausanne? Yeah, Baden. And criticizes, yeah, Baden, and criticizes uh, Watson, right? An hour afterwards, Sherlock Holmes, in his usual garb and style, was seated in my private room at the hotel. His explanation of his sudden and opportune appearance was simply was simplicity itself. For finding that he could get away from London, he determined to head me off at the next obvious point of my travels. In the disguise of a working man, he had sat in the cabaret waiting for my appearance. Now, here's the note. Benjamin Clark sees Holmes' behavior here, and further on, as illogical and bizarre. If Watson had wired Holmes that Lady Frances was on her way to London... Holmes had no reason to disguise himself in Montpellier. And yet, Clark puzzles, the detective chose this moment to indulge his craving for fancy dress by disgusting himself, disguising himself as a French workman. Was this, or was his only purpose in doing so to have the pleasure of startling Watson? Indeed, Watson had done excellent work, picking up Lady Frances's trail, identifying the persons with whom she left Baden, and notwithstanding Holmes' accusation, doing nothing to alarm the criminals. Definitely a dick move. It is a dick move. And I agree, like, just like he was so critical in uh, Wisteria Lodge of uh, Scott Eccles for being just kind of like a bumbling oaf. But Scott Eccles, when he woke up, he went to the letting agent to see if the mor if, see if the rent had been paid on the property. He did a bit of sleuth in himself before he went to Baker Street to ask Holmes for help. He had That's information true. to give the detective, and yet Holmes was really dismissive of him. And I think we have to acknowledge that while some... <sighs> While some interpretations of Holmes try to make him a hero and a clever guy and a sharpshooter and all the rest of it, he's a real he's a real dick in a lot of times. Yes, but again, we can attribute that dickishness, I guess, to just like uh, social um, yeah, yeah. disability in that way. Not like a disability in terms of mental, but just in terms mm -hmm. of social um, lacking of some social graces. 
I, I agree with you. I think you can. But when it comes to the way he treats Watson, I don't think you can excuse it that way. It's not just a class thing. It's not just a context thing. It's a character thing because yes. these, these guys are very close friends. One is doing a favor for his friend. I mean, you know, he's clearly using Watson here, not thinking about his wants, needs, or desires, which I think, again, uh, here you go, spinning the record, but... I think that this falls very nicely in with the lack of empathy that you often see from high-functioning autistics. But moving on, you know, I, I just think that he's he's a dick here, isn't he? I don't he think you can excuse him. He definitely is. And sometimes I feel that he's, it's almost like he's out of he's out of character at some points. By this point, like the evolution of the character, it seems like it's out of character. Uh, the way that he treats Watson that way, and, and then Watson makes no difference. That or it's just lazy writing. Well, that's right. Like, if, if we're meant to see him as a whole, complete, but very clever person with his idiosyncrasies, right, then I don't think it's fair the way that he, or I don't like, rather, that one of his character flaws is the way he treats his friends. If, however, we're to admit a more complex reading of the character and, and, and welcome, at least welcome in these uh, ideas of autisms, uh, spectrum disorders, or whatever, then I think it's maybe admissible, right? But how are we meant to see him? How, how's the public? The public reads him as a hero. The public reads him as a, as a regular genius man hero with a couple of little problems. But one of them treating his friend like shit. I don't like that. I don't think that's funny. No, definitely not. It's almost you feel like Watson is almost is, 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 is a, a charity worker for Holmes, you know, like just... Yeah. Uh, just being his friend, you know, like a big brother kind of program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, I can see the two of them on one of those ads from the early 90s, you know. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, right. So, investigation. Um, I went three and a half for this because so I. I think it's a story of two parts. You know, you've got that very slow moving beginning. And then when they get back to London, I think it's as good as we've got in the last, you know, 10 stories probably. I think it's... Really good, but requires that that beginning part to be so so well done, so so uh, written in a in a concise way to lead up to 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 where it's leading. That it's uh, it's a failed payoff. Uh, it's it's disappointing in that fashion. You know that it has kind of a good payoff in, at the end, and it, you know it makes up for the almost makes up for the for the for, for the the beginning of the story. But to me, I don't know is. I think like a, a great ending to, uh, and to like a bad movie to me is still is still a bad movie. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Because you'll have you still have to watch the first part of it, right? Do you think that? Like, do you feel as though this was a story of two parts? Do you think maybe yeah. that Doyle didn't really know where he wanted to go with it once he got back or once he got to Switzerland? Well, I, uh, yeah, it seems like he wrote, he wrote it off the cuff, and then and I think he just got you know into tight into writing or typing whatever he was doing there, uh, to you know to complete that the manuscript for the story, and he might have just like gone on a stream of consciousness, sort of deciding he wanted to have a, a Euro Trek story, and then all of a sudden he thought about this, then he got back into his Australians and what and stuff that he's done before, and decided to include that and give it a little bit of a twist, and and maybe he in the end that's he he he, he enjoyed writing that and that's why that the last part of the story sticks out so well and, and it's well written is because the writer was into it as well yeah yeah i, I agree with that i think that's a fair assessment um do you know in, in terms of the investigation and talking about the second half i did come across something and often i do you know let's give these scholars the credit or the sherlockians credit when they do offer really nice pieces of evidence or good connections that you know open up my eyes as a casual reader 
uh, to this stuff. And I don't even know if it's fair to call us casual readers because we're not doing anything casual, are we? But no, we are. Do we are doing a podcast on the books for, for gosh sake? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, like, <laughs> he, he, so here's here's something. Like, this is the question I had, and I was just delighted that the Klinger edition contained a little essay on this subject. So I'm wondering, mm. like, it's not like Peters, right, would be above murder. No. So screwing the coffin lid feels a little bit risky to me. And so does the chloroform drugging. Like, in fact, like, why Lady Frances was even kept alive warrants a bit of questioning. And I, I couldn't figure that out. Like, as I was reading it, I'm like, this guy's obviously a creep. He's well known to Holmes, which means he's got a criminal record that, and I don't mean that in a police term. I mean, he has a record that has registered on Holmes's radar. So he's obviously big and bold enough to, to do what he wants. He he steals from, swindles women, he drops them, travels around with them, and clearly he's going to harm this one. So why wouldn't he also kill them? It just seems really stupid to bury them alive. Unless unless they're going to be presented as like some sort of kinky serial killers with a knack for doing this one thing, why not just kill her? I mean, narratively speaking, why not just kill her, you know? so Because plot. Well, because plot, yes. But also, <laughs> this is what the essay was, this is where I'm going now. The essay was saying to me, or was was informing me that the plot decision may actually have had more to do with the fascination at the time of premature burial. Huh. And Doyle could have chosen spectacle over sensibility here, allowing his perpetrators to, to have a blunder because it lent some real fascination to the readers at the time. And then I was thinking about this other show I was listening to recently, a um, great podcast called Lore. And there's actually a, a film, not a film, a TV show on Amazon about it as well, like the first season of it. And it basically goes into like the myths and, and histories of some things that are either supernatural or scary or, you know, the, the way that folklore operates. And one of them was about the dead ringers, right? And the idea of premature burial, the fear that individuals had, not only in, in Britain, but also in um, colonial America. And the idea of, of, of fixing the bells through the coffins into the uh, up through the ground and you know that if, if someone were to wake they could ring the bell and and it would oh, be heard yeah. you know all of I that heard, stuff I, I heard about that yeah that people put bells and stuff and their coins that left the coin on the on the grave and stuff like that and so i just wonder like if if there's anything in that do you think that this was doyle trying to play into you know a, a flavor of the of the week especially someone who is into spirits and fairies and whatnot i wouldn't be surprised at all i don't know because it is a strange thing for these criminals to do, to chloroform and to bury her on top of an older woman in a deep casket instead of just kill her. It very much is. It seems like he's definitely catering to the demographic that reads the Strand, that reads the American and Colliers, um, that he's trying to, you know, this is again, we're, this is their argument against Holmes and Sherlock Holmes' novel and being novels and, and, and the collections being great literature is that in fact it's tapping into a fandom of sensationalist kind of pulp in, in its own kind of way. It's because like it's, it's almost like it's very classy pulp fiction. Hmm. Victorian, you... Victorian pulp fiction. So what's your opinion then? Like what's your opinion of why he did that? You think just plot? I think plot that he, that he pulled from the, from the, but by he tapped into something that was, prevalent in the culture and in folklore and whatnot. Uh, I think being a Scotsman, I think, helps him with that. Uh, he can have that detached view. He can have a detached, not a detached view, but he can see things on the street level better than, I guess, the more upper crust English could. You know what I mean? Fair enough. Yeah, I guess so. It's I... a working man's glance into a classical world and how they, have, how they operate. 
there could be something in that, yeah. Do you think, because, you know, you think about a story like the cardboard box. I know that Doyle's not afraid of being grim. He's not afraid of murdering uh, innocent innocent people, <laughs> right? He, he's not a, he's not afraid of, of bringing those no. types of ends to his honorable characters. So definitely not. I just, I don't know, it's, it seems strange to me. And But it's interesting to have that little insight on uh, premature burial. And then you think of Poe who was himself uh, an inspiration for a lot of what Doyle wrote in this gothic kind of, uh, or when when the stories get their gothic edge, you know, like you, you can sense Poe sometimes, and Poe wrote The Premature Burial, and there was something in that too, and I just wonder if if there's a, a connection somewhere along the way that this essayist was, uh, you know, getting on with, but hey, whatever. I think there's an interesting connection between, I think, uh, writers of like, like if you look at Arthur Conan Doyle, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, even like Mary Shelley, there's a really good connection to like um, upper class, like like doctors or uh, aristocratic women, aristocratic gentlemen, mm. um, really delving into gothic, into the gothic and into um, supernatural, you know, yeah. um, it just seems to be kind of like a luxury that they can have. And so they're interested in these things. And I think, and, and the fact you're talking about that premature burial was something really interested by people back then was, was was something that intrigued people back then. It seems to me that he might have been tapping into that uh, uh, demographic, you know, and and just in, in, and catering to their kind of uh, views on things and and whatnot, and the sensationalism that that's attached to that. Mm, yeah. Cool. Well, let me just quickly uh, fire on to my perpetrators. I gave them a three. I feel as though in an elongated story, particularly given their info-dumped backstory, they could have been more interesting. But the truth is they aren't as interesting as the crime. They're not as interesting as the um, the, the denouement of the story. And it just so happens no. that they're in it. But I think we got to differentiate, don't we, what they do from the way they're actually put on the page. And they're kind of boring. Like, we don't get a lot of them. Like, okay, so Peter, Peter's... He's got this way of using his faith to prey on female victims, right? But but we don't see that. We're told we don't, that. Yeah, exactly. We're told it. So there's so much info dump here on the con artist kind of features of his life that, uh, you know, when Holmes tells us, oh, he's a wicked man, holy Peters and all this stuff, like, okay, but I don't see that. And and that's always this, that's always it. You want your dramatic characterization here. You don't want exposition. That's why I think we're, that's where the, the whole trek in Europe for Watson, to me, kind of falls flat is – you could have the perpetrators flesh out a little bit more, have Watson interact with the Schlesingers and seeing yeah. them talk about their holy writ and I'm putting on a show and all this kind of stuff, right? And yeah. and giving hints towards that. But, you know, so, in, and that would make the uh, denouement, as you say, uh, much more impressive and yeah. earned. Uh, and then, and, and, but that's, you know, because of the lack of that, that's why they're 3.5 for me. I was a little more generous. Uh, and three for you as perpetrators. I think there's potential of them as characters, but potential does not equal, you know, what we got on page. So mm, uh, I'll stay with my 3.5. I, I kind of like, I, I kind of liked their, the, I, I like, I still like the twist coming down, coming down from the investigation. Mm -hmm. um, but it, but in, in retrospect, it doesn't really feel like the twist was more of a narrative twist, something outside of their control as characters. They just like decided to like bury a woman alive because they didn't want to kill her. But I don't know. To me, knowing that someone's being buried alive, that's that's even worse than I don't know. Just like snuffing them with like a gun a shot to the head or something like that. You know, like yeah. It, to me, it's just as bad in in in, in, in that way. Um, it'd be different if they like walked away and they then they're and they they assume that the fate of that person would be ambi ambiguous. 
but that's not the case here. And why would they make that person suffer even more? You know what I mean? Like it just doesn't seem. Um, it just doesn't it make seems, sense. It seems less humane. Exactly. So I don't know. I'm gonna bring my pigment bound down to three now. That's 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 what I, that's what I'm gonna do. All right. I I, I don't really have any vested uh, interest in the characters to fight the three point five. So I'll leave it at a three. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff they do would have been uh, more interesting to read if they were developed more. Explain to me. Or maybe you didn't do the same sort of criminal profiling then. Maybe you wouldn't have had the, the serial killer with the things, you know. I mean, of course, there were the Jack Ripper and all that stuff was, you know, that was very much of this time, wasn't it? Yeah, 1890s. I think it was 1880s, late 1880s. 1880s, yeah. But, okay. 1888 or something like that. Yeah, okay. Well, anyway, whatever. I just thought that, you know, if, if these guys were career criminals and they did this sort of stuff, then they should have had more readable clues and if one of those readable clues could have been a kitschiness towards how they di disposed of their bodies or their victims then i would have bought into this whole chloroform uh, thing but it just felt gimmicky to me so yeah three three in terms of um oh and the other thing i was saying uh was just like culverton smith in the dying detective he had that creepy bedside admission and explain some of his motives and his his creepiness was coming through his own mouth and his own behavior whereas these guys like you say it's all info drop so it's just not as powerful when you're told it you got to be shown it or you, you got to yeah. let the guy say a few words you know we get that confrontation between holmes when he tries to barge into the house and whatnot but it's really just kind of like but the characters are very like one-dimensional in that scene yeah well he's laughing at him right because he knows that he's a great sherlock holmes but it's left at that uh, yeah, I kind of wish there was more about him, about Holmes being vexed by this guy that he couldn't prove it. You know, that was, that this guy was who he was. You know, but mm -hmm. uh, and and everyone would be charmed by him after what he did. I don't know I would have kind of liked to see them a story like, like like that, but I just don't think that sort of like originality or that sort of concept and so a dynamic as as it is. I just I, th I think it was probably just not in the mindset of writers back then. Okay, well, in terms of environment. I I went for two, and I feel like at the start of the story, I would much rather, like, getting ready to go to Switzerland, I was getting ready for a great adventure, you know, like a real good travel log, a lot of fun, but it was just so pathetic that it didn't, it, it could have happened in London, I would rather have seen him do something like he did in the Red Circle, you know, like, just give me a London story, or don't make me feel like I'm going on a journey, and then it just be such a, a gimmick, such a, a cheap I'm now in Switzerland and now I'm back again. Like, what's the fucking point, man? And yeah. be because I was getting excited and then really let down, I think that actually has amplified my negativity towards the environment. So I, I went for the first failing mark I have in a while, a two. I thought that the environment was used really poorly. There was a bit of interest when we got to Schlesinger's home. That could have been cool, but there's really no great detail of any rooms, of any exterior scene. This is a really boring dull environmental presentation on the page it really is i mean we're mentioned we're told lasan we're told baden we're told um montpellier like we're all these places you know switzerland france and whatnot this you would think you know that that with environs oh this this would be a heady broth but yeah. uh no it's very very weak us, yeah. it's a very very weak swill it even is in the terms of like the, the the house belonging to holy stevens and the coffin and all of that uh even even, even that it isn't taken advantage of in my opinion which could have been uh 
so I don't know. I gave it 2.5, but I was just very indifferent about it that I didn't really consider why I gave it 2.5 as opposed to two. Yeah, so I know. I'm just going to leave it at 2.5 yeah. because Fair I'm just enough. indifferent to it completely because it just it was just very blah. It's kind of like that scene, isn't it? And like uh, <clears throat> the Indiana Jones films where you, you get that the, the the plane moving from dot to dot, uh, only take away a good music and just leave it bland. And that's kind of what you have here for environment. Yeah, yeah. It lacks the Raiders march. <laughs> and then we get your secondary characters. And we've got Philip Green, the honorable Philip Green, the savage and whatnot. And you know what? I kind of liked his character. I would like to have had more of him. Fuck, why couldn't you have, you know, made me feel like he was after this woman for a good reason instead of just, oh, we have a history. That was lame. I feel like he could have been a really cool character because of what he did in London, which was really, really nifty. I like the way that Holmes respected him enough to use him as a plant to bring him on board to his investigation. He had enough he had enough faith in him to know that he wouldn't cock it up, you know? Like he could yes. be used as as a as a tale. I liked all of that stuff, but the character himself wasn't written particularly well. His exchanges with Watson were really pathetic, really boring, badly written. So I, I had a hard time going above two point five for him. Yeah, I give it I give it uh, three for the okay. supporting cast overall. Again, it just came came to indifference. Like I didn't hate I didn't dislike any of the supporting cast. I, I didn't love any of the supporting cast. To me, it's just a neutral three for me. Right. Green was okay. Uh, I do do agree that uh, there's more potential there and he could have been fleshed out. He's just a typical another type of like uh, errant knight gentleman um, uh, kind of like a diamond in the rough type individual, you know, just like covered in uh, very kind of like burly kind of exterior with a beard and um, barrel chested and stuff and who kind of seems like a ruffian at first but is actually you know this just this gentleman uh, who has some connection to the victim and or to the to, or is being investigated for the crime so what choose whichever trope you like yeah. it's the same thing we've seen all the time here and we have a, and here we are going through Europe and we're, we have such a limited supporting cast besides, you know, Green. I mean, if you look at the story, I mean, this is the supporting cast. If you, if you look at it here, um, okay, we got Lestrade. He's Lestrade. He does what he does. Philip Green, you know, as I said, there's about him. Uh, the Dobneys aren't really discussed nah. at all. Well, it's, only, it's only her, isn't it? Like, Yeah, and just like the, in a little servants that pop up and whatnot like to me it was just very very sparse is lestrade even in this i thought he was i have it, no he, recollection of that who was the uh who was the um the, the, the inspector then that, that he, dealt, he dealt with what the, at, uh, at the oh, end no, the, there was a constable yeah. that prevented uh that wasn't lestrade i'm sorry it was a constable that prevented Holmes from going into the house or breaking into the house or, or what have you. But, you know, we're on your side, Holmes, but, yeah, you can't break into this person's house. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to find his name here, but I can't find it. They, yeah, they send him out. It's just a constable. It's an unnamed constable, isn't it? Unnamed constable. But I thought Lestrade appeared at the, at the, at the end to arrest. But I, 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 I could be totally wrong. I'm just going to double check that right now. No, I'm looking at it right now. I can't see anything like that. No. Oh, yes, you're right. You are right, my friend. If Holmes would call about nine... Well, there's a reference to Lestrade. Uh, Lestrade is going to see the warrant collected, but it doesn't. he doesn't activate it in any... Or he's not active on in the story in any way. He's just mentioned there as part of the wallpaper. Yeah, well, okay, again, that just attributes to kind of just like the so-so the 
uh, view I have of, of the sporting <laughs> yeah, cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So that's a, what, sorry, what was your final mark? A three, right? Three. Right, that brings you to a 15 and a half for Lady Frances Carfax and a 14 and a half for me. And I think mm. we were really close on what we were saying. A great story potential, but ultimately let down by a lack of development of character and environment. A character and environment would have made it better because the environmental features would have allowed me to enjoy the the which was what was essentially a badly written Swiss episode. I would have enjoyed that more if there was more travelogue. And character for the supporting actors like Philip Green would have been nice. That would have helped. Maybe the story could have reached 19, you know? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Uh, it, it was definitely missing some chocolates, some Swiss chocolate goodies, that's for sure. Right. Well, uh, in terms of goodies, a nice segue into our musical selection. You have door number one, or should I say coffin number one or coffin number two? Coffin number two. Is it the Monster Mash? Please be the Monster Mash. <laughs> it's not the Monster Mash. In fact, you, what you've selected, my buddy, is a very good song. You've selected uh, a song by an artist named Feldo. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. It's a very modern tune. She is a British artist, and this song is called Holes in Your Coffin. Now, the reason I like this, both literally and figuratively, Holmes manages to exploit the holes in the coffin of the Schlesinger pair. So... Hope you enjoy it. Starts a little slow. Thematic connection. Well done. Thematic connection. It's a good it's a good tune as well.
There you go. So what's your thought of that tune? That's pretty cool, actually. Kind of it was me, a uh... cool song. It's one of the better finds I've had this year, I must admit, because as an old man now, I'm not spending a lot of time listening to music online, but I'm as proud of that discovery, and I'm uh, happy to share it here with you and the folks. That was uh, Feldell. I'm sure her true fans are calling uh, me a moron right now. Maybe it's Fildell. Fildell. Anyway, from, from the album, The Disappearance of the Girl, Holes in Your Coffin. Very cool. It definitely has like a, a kind of a Kate Bush kind of style. Mm. Oh, yeah, uh, little, little bit, A little mix of Susie Sue and the Banshees in there too. Really interesting. Yeah, that's so as well. Nice voice. Anyway, <clears throat> so there we go. That is uh, show one, eight, one third of the way through. Yes, so let's go into the next third. Let's talk about uh, the Devil's Foot. All right, so what publication history do you have for me? Publication history on the Devil's Foot or the adventure thereof. Yes, indeed. Well, let's see what I've got here for you. Published in The Strand, December of 1910. Regarded fondly by many for the depth of the friendship shared between Holmes and Watson, which is kind of ironic considering he was just major dick to his partner in the last one. Uh, also, some excellent lines in here developed, or sorry, delivered by Holmes has made this a fan favorite, fan favorite as well. But yeah, the tenth uh, of December, uh, nineteen ten December in the Strand. This I couldn't find any publication history for uh, America, which leads me to believe that until the publication of this entire collection, it didn't have a weekly uh, release. Or I have a, I have a, a back source I can check on that really quickly for you. Let me just. Uh... It's called the ArthurConanDoyle.com. It's a, it's a really good website, actually. Uh, we're just going to go back a section page here and look at the uh, Devil's Foot. And yeah, Strand Magazine, December 1910. That's all I got, too. Yeah. Uh, Saturday Evening Mail, U.S., 1911. Ah. It was, was its first publication in the U.S., but way, way after. Hmm. Maybe I don't know. Maybe because of uh, possible reasons, dark kind of the, the more dark atmosphere of the story, uh, it might have not attracted. Mm. I don't know. I don't think so. Or I don't know. I mean, yes, it was the Americans that dropped uh, the cardboard box early and then put it back in at this time. So there might be something in that. But what what month was it in 1911? Or does it not say? Because we're talking to... 29th of April to 6th of May, right. 1911. Right. So, already so that's a good four months after it published in uh, in Britain. Yeah, Yeah. interesting, eh? Indeed. Well, Goodreads. Uh, <clears throat> a couple, oh, of, couple of reviews here. Uh, one guy, Colin, gives it four stars and says, The Adventure of the Devil's Foot was a fresh addition to these stories. Once again, Holmes and Watson find themselves in the countryside to solve a strange occurrence on the moor. Hey, if it's anything to take from these short stories, it's don't go near the moor. Anyways, the story provided new avenues for investigation with chemicals, but it was over a little too quickly. This would have made a nice addition to the Holmes novels if expanded upon. A good read. Now, I admire that for, well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's it's more than your average shite, and it's trying to say a couple things about the story. I also excuse the... Um, Misuse of the word more, which is a very technical term, as you well know. It's not something that just means outside. But there are no mores in this part of the world. But that's okay. Um, It's an Americana uh, thing. I I think so, too. But I'll give... give, um, What was his name? Colin. 
Colin. I'll give Colin credit though. Cornwall, you can kind of connect that to the creepy moors of, mm-hmm. of Dartmoor and whatnot. Cornwall is like ancient mystical England, the South. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is the the Cornwall of lead legend from King Arthur. So. You know, I, I give him. You know, I think he wanted to convey that it's some mysterious kind of creepy place. So I, I think I, th- I think more will fit that. Good. Well, what about Jason? Five stars from Jason. Ooh. For two smart men, that was pretty stupid, but a whole lot of fun. That's it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't feel. It doesn't feel like a five star review. That feels like a three and a half star <laughs> review. It actually feels like a one star. The review itself is a bit one star, but hey, uh, B just B, two stars. Really, this one fell flat for me. One, not an adventure. Simple mystery. Emphasis on simple. Two, Jesus Christ, Holmes. I thought he'd know better than to test things on himself. In brackets. Or maybe he would. I've only read about a dozen of these. End bracket. Ha. Now, I'll, I'll pick up on that later. Okay? That's, I'll pick up on that later in one of my notes. But uh, last review here from Robin. Three stars. It's Sherlock Holmes. So it's still pretty good. But one of the weaker stories I've read. That's not really saying much. No, but, but, what, but what's we're, that's what we're here for. What that does mean, though, uh, BFG, it means that the opportunity now is yours, and the job is now yours to get a plot summary of this wonderful or maybe not so wonderful story underway. What have you got for us on the Devil's Foot? Well. 1897 Cornwall, the double team of Dr. Agar and Dr. Watson has convinced Holmes that in order to avoid an exhaustive breakdown, that he partakes in some rest and relaxation. No one, including Holmes himself, wants the world's greatest sleuth to succumb to the drawbacks of the mortal husk that transports his brilliant brain everywhere. And so Watson and so Sherlock relents and puts himself up in a cottage in ancient Cornwall, Padu Bay for those of us who are playing the home game. But even a little convalescence is impossible for Holmes and his good friend, Dr. Watson, for the local vicar, Mr. Roundhay, and his tenant, one Mortimer Tregenis, come a-knockin' with a matter for his expertise. What we've seen, what we get seems like an opening teaser for an X-Files episode. It the does, story yeah. in which Mr. Tregenis relates to visiting his siblings for a, whist, for, for a game of whist at their house in the sleepy Cornish hamlet of Tredanic Wallace. And left soon afterwards, only to re- and left soon afterwards, only to return to- in the morning to find out from the maid that his sister was dead, with a terrified expression on her face, and his brothers engulfed in a terrible madness. Even creepier, Tregenis's sister Brenda was dead at the card table, and her two brothers George and Owen were singing and dancing, unawares of anything else. Creepy. Local coppers are stunned by all this, of course. Hence the house call to our human calculating machine of crime. Instant death and madness all at once. Relations between Mortimer and his sibling weren't the greatest, but how could the night end like this just as they were reconnecting? Surely this is not the work of some diabolical force. Cue Holmesian eye roll. Mm. Holmes, bored of R&R, agrees to visit the house. Watson comes along as per usual. When he arrives, he absently, when Holmes arrives, I should say, he absently, intentionally knocks over a water pitcher, a planting water pitcher, sorry, and everyone gets soaker because soakers because of it. Remember soakers when you were a kid, how it always got your, your shoes and your socks got all wet? Yeah, those kind. Hmm, it's almost like he did that on purpose. This obstacle aside, the Tregenis household and his crime scene within is examined. The maid chirps that the brothers and sister were just fine recently, enjoying the fruits of their labor garnered from their business. A business that we learn Mortimer Tregenis was not currently a part of. Hmm. Mortimer shares with his skeptical Holmes that during the fateful game of whist, he spotted some movement outside the window. Ooh. Well, that just explains about everything. The burden of proof no longer on you, Morty. 
preliminary examination now filed away into his mind attic, Holmes confidently shares this is not the work of man of wealth and taste. No. The incident, one could call it, occurred immediately after Mortimer left for the night this for the night. This is due to the fact that the Trigenesis were still sitting at the table and that Mortimer went quickly back to Roundhay's, this confirmed by the footprint that Holmes revealed via the watering pot. Not to mention the tropey horror story that Mortimer related earlier only came from him. Can I just stop you for one quick second? We. Oui. Um, I just want to say that, you know, you know you're into a better story when your plot summary is dealing with a crime scene. You know what I mean? That is 100% true. And just, just listening to you talk about this and Holmes and that and thinking this and there's a footprint there. Like, you're getting back into Silver Blaze territory kind of, aren't you? And it's, it's cool. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. I got, I got goosebumps, I know. Uh, cue a new player in this Cornish drama, Dr. Leon Sterndale, a reputed big game hunter, explorer, and icon of British colonialism, arrives on the scene. The vicar had sent him a wire, you see, as the Sterndales and Tregenesis are cousins. And like all cousins appearing in novels, okay, novella, Okay, short story. They, <laughs> they tend to fall in love with each other. Sterndale has a, has a heart for the late Brenda Tregenis, but that means jack crap to Holmes, who refuses to let anyone in on his process because it's a day that ends in Y. Sterndale <laughs> takes off in a huff, and Holmes decides to follow him around because reasons. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. Go. Next day, Morty Tregenis, I say Morty, it reminds me of Rick and Morty, but that's okay, uh, is found dead in his lodgings, sitting up with that same terrified expression on his face. Now, I see, now I've been giving less than subtle hints that Morty may be the culprit throughout this summary. Well, this is where I fool you, dear listeners. Holmes finds the room foul and uh, full of foul air and, and stuffy, and the upstairs window is open for some reason, and hello, there's some ash on the windowsill. Helloa, one might say. Hmm. Holmes scoops the ash up in an envelope and soon uses the ash in a newly bought lamp. The effect is immediate as the entire lodge fills up with a foul gas and smoke. He manages to get him and Watson out just in time, but despite this altercation and poor Watson reeling from his partner's callous brilliance, can only he can only follow along. We learn the dire fashion in which bitter and left out of the family business, Morty Tregenis killed his family with a mysterious powder. But then who offered more who offed Morty? Well, as it turns out, not only did Sterndale love his cousin Brenda, he also was married and couldn't get out of divorce, hence they're never marrying. Poor guy had to pine from his cousin, pine for his cousin from the jungles of Africa. <laughs> that kind of came out a bit uh, stereotype, but oh well. Uh, Holmes tells Sterndale the jig is up, that he loved Brenda, and that's why he killed Morty Tregenis. Morty visited Sterndale before the murder and stole some of the shamanic African super powder from Sterndale's lodgings. And aware of Sterndale's affection for his sister and aware of his own hatred for his siblings, used the powder to take his siblings out. Bastard. But just as his dish served cold because Sterndale figured out the M.O. of the crime and took please, pleasure, deep pleasure, watching Tregenis die in his chair from the very instrument he killed his sister and drove his brothers permanently mad with. Holmes, like Sterndale's sense of justice and not being officially involved, once again uh, leaves this crime unsolved and Sterndale free to explore the world and kill animals, only a little more sadder this time around. <laughs> a little more sad, yeah. A little more sad. Is it wrong that I was picturing a Hemingway figure when I was reading him? Uh, I, I, I almost was going to say uh, Dr. I was going to say uh, Dr. Stern, Dr. Livingston, or I mean Sterndale, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I, Livingston. I Either Livingston or Hemingway works in this in this case. Yeah, and, I'll, Hemingway, well, and Hemingway would do something like that to the person who killed his love. Absolutely, probably would. Yeah, I mean, hard yeah. to say. Hard to say. 
Anyway, that's that's great. And like I was saying, um, through my apologetic interjection, we've got ourselves into the midst of a better story here. At least a more, at least at least a, a better written story because yes, there's 100%. plot and there's there's red herrings and there's lots of things about. And there is that really gothic. And I keep you know I don't want to overuse that term because I understand that it has you know implications generically. But it th- there's a real dark atmosphere around this one. And I mean, if I could, if I could just start on that note, maybe before we even go onto our pipes on this one, one sure. critic, one critic believes that the murder in the Devil's Foot must have derived from Poe's short story *Imp of the Perverse*, wherein the murder committed, the murderer committed his crime with a poisoned candle. Like I think Poe's touches on a lot of this canon. We've talked about it before when we looked at the Engineer's Thumb, when we looked at the Speckled Band, when we just talked about him in the last episode. You know, with the whole coffin and the premature burial. And here you've got another story of Poe's that seems to have lent some inspiration to the mode of murder here, or at least a poisoned candle was active in that one. I think there's a lot of interesting continuum. Uh, you know, genre bending stuff, not genre bending, genre borrowing stuff that we've got going on here. Absolutely. And you can definitely see the convergence of the, of Doyle's mystery thrillers with the Gothic in this particular story. Yes. Yeah. You, you certainly can. And, and Poe is a, is a, is a, is a great call there. Yeah. And you know, this is a good opportunity to get out of London. There's a good reason for this one. Unlike Holmes just showing up in Baden, we have a reason for him being in the country. And it isn't just shoehorned in there. It it seems like narratively it makes a bit of sense. You know, Watson would be in a position to comment on Holmes' stress levels. And you know, in terms of in terms of his role as a physician, he would be a sensible partner to go on holiday with, you know, if the doctor is giving him an order to relax. So I, I like logic, I like the whole setup. The logic is sound. And I'm going to, if, and I because I, I, let's just puff on our pipes now because we already lit them. Sure. Let's face it. Um, going into the principles on this right now, yep. which I gave 4.5, by the way, okay. uh, simply because Watson still has a little bit of non-agency, but, he's, but his presence there makes sense, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, I found like Holmes to me is like on on the level of this story. Like he's great in this through this whole story, and and he does his usual things. But he, I, I don't know. I, I just enjoyed their their dynamic in this story as a whole. Um, going into the principles, don't you find uh, that this is kind of like the detour episode of Sherlock Holmes? And by detour, you know what I'm referring to, of course, the yeah. uh, season five X Files episode, where mm-hmm. going to some kind of FBI partnership building course, uh, team building <laughs> course, or whatever, uh, Mulder and Scully are are sidetracked by uh, Mothman in the ever in the woods of the Everglades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. This, yeah. And so the thing is that that story erupted naturally within the episode, even though, like, yeah, they investigate these cases, they go to these particular places to investigate cases. It just sh- it just kind of it's a great blending of the, just you can expect anything to happen in, in the world of Sherlock Holmes as you expect in the world of X-Files now. So as long as you got the characters at the place where they need to be, and it's believable that they're in that, in that place when all these things happen around them, then it, that makes for a better story. It does. And that's exactly what you were saying and what I was saying, both of us, about the idea of the logic being sound at the beginning here. It's not a chunky or a cheap or a quick or a lazy setup. The motivating incident works to get them where they're going. And it does work. And, you know, 
I said in terms of the principles um, that Holmes has excellent lines here in this story, all through really. Uh, just to echo what you were saying, that he's, Can you he's give me really examples? good. Of course, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I really, I really like this story, and I'm just—I guess I'm just so uh, over—I'm kind of overstimulated by it. What lines in particular are you speaking of? Okay, well, the best line. Okay, the best line, and I'm sure I'm not alone in in my feelings here, is when he's speaking to uh, the the doctor afterwards, and <clears throat> he's saying, and you can almost picture him disarming the doctor here. Uh, or the what's his name Sterndale as he's yeah. as he's speaking to him like this is where Sterndale refuses to believe that a hunter as great as himself I mean this is all subtext but or it's not said in the dialogue but he, you can imagine the character not willing to believe that someone could trail him and he says <laughs> uh, uh, the bluff said Holmes sternly is upon your side Leon Sterndale not upon mine as proof I'll tell you some of the facts upon which my conclusions are based of your return from Plymouth, allowing much of your property to go on to Africa, I'll say nothing save that it first informed me that you were one of the factors which had to be taken into account in reconstructing the drama. I came back. I've heard your reasons and regard them as unconvincing and inadequate. We'll pass that. You came down here to ask me whom I suspected. I refused to answer you. You then went to the vicarage, waited outside for some time, and finally returned to your cottage. How do you know that? I followed you. I saw no one. That's what you may expect to see when I follow you. Like I, I, lo- I love yeah. that, you know, like that ballsy. Yeah, and this is supposed to be Holmes not on his game. This is Holmes a little sick, but he hasn't lost that that metal that allows him to talk down to some of these guys who rate themselves as supreme. You know, yeah. I like I like that. Like you're reminded in a way that you're almost cheering for him here. Yeah, you're right, yeah. man. You got him. You got him. You know, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah for for sure. He's badass for sure. So that that's I mean I just thought that was a great response. It was quick and it was very Sherlock and in in his best. I gave the principles five here. I mean to me this is a mini Baskerville. Like the way both characters are involved and both characters work together. And I'm going to pick up on something you said in your plot summary, which I know wasn't a mistake, but I think I'd just like to tease it out a bit more. You had said sure. how the, you you said how they you know how Holmes put the powder on the candle and the the lamp and then then they they escaped before it was too bad. That scene where Holmes impresses upon Watson the importance of doing the experiment. Let's figure out what this is, right? Which is the thing that led them. Like, there's a scene, there's a conversation there that the characters have about, you know, are you actually going to do this? And yes, I am. And you're going to do it with me. And anyway, upon my word, Watson, said Holmes at last, I... I owe you both my thanks and an apology. It was unjustifiably, it was an unjustifiable experiment, even for oneself, and doubly so for a friend. I'm really very sorry. You know, I answered with some emotion, for I had never seen so much of Holmes's heart before, that it is my greatest joy and privilege to help you. The the commitment to the cause that these guys are going through, and what Holmes does, and then he kind of expects Watson to do it, I really liked that. And one of the things that I'm and, then, picking... and then Holmes checking himself afterwards, realizing that I almost killed my friend. That, That's that, right. That, like that, I, 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 I thought that was but good. But Watson being okay with it because of that connection, you know? And I can see that, you know, the Slash writers are going to buy into that stuff. But I'm trying to look beyond that for a moment because, you know, it was it was argued in one of the Goodreads reviews. I don't remember which one of the guys had said it, but that, you know, how stupid it was of Holmes to do this. But I want to read you something else that comes from uh, one of these annotations. I Because I remember... But I didn't have the reference, and luckily Les Klinger did. And I'm going to share this with you now. Uh, it's it's basically just a little note about the spirit of inquiry that Holmes often uh, displays. But you've got in flip into the page so I can read it right off the page because it his words are better than mine here in this case. Right. 
Okay, so remember how in that review, the guy was saying, what a stupid thing for these two guys to do. Uh, and I can't believe that Holmes would put himself in, in harm this way, right? But in a study in Scarlet, Watson recognized in Holmes a real reckless abandon. And here's where we've got it here. Watson had been warned of his trait of, of this trait of Holmes. Stamford, as recorded in the first chapter of a study in Scarlet, told Watson, quote, I could imagine his giving a friend a little pinch of the latest vegetable alkaloid, not out of malevolence, you understand, but simply out of a spirit of inquiry, in order to have an accurate idea of the effects. To do him justice, I think that he would take it himself with the same readiness, end quote. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, like, I might hurt other people, you know, in my own way, but I also do damage to myself as well. Yeah, just the willingness to put himself there. Like, there's obviously canonical precedent for it. But, you know, like, this isn't a Holmes doing something reckless that he would never have done in any other situation. Because, you know, even in the very first story, characters... And isn't it Stamford that introduces the two of them, right? That's right, yeah, for, like, the, for the apartment. That's right. Like, you know, he's introduced as a guy who would most likely, even to the casual observer or the acquaintance, do something reckless, do something crazy just to figure out the truth. And so here he is with this powder. He knows the powder is somehow hooked into unlocking this mystery. And, you know, he goes right into it. And the description, too, of that acid trip, now it's not technically an acid trip because it's not LSD, <laughs> but of the devil's foot itself, like of what happens. Should, we, should I read a little bit of that? Yeah, it's just like that brief, um, a brief brush with madness that Watson kind of uh, falls yeah. under. So now, Watson, let us sit down and await developments. They were not long in coming. I'd hardly settled in my chair before I was conscious of a thick, musky odor, subtle and nauseous. At the very first whiff of it, my brain and my imagination were beyond all control. A thick black cloud swirled before my eyes, and my mind told me that this cloud, unseen as yet, but about to spring out upon my appalled senses, lurked all that was vaguely horrible, all that was monstrous and inconceivably wicked in the universe. Vague shapes swirled and swam amid the dark cloud bank, each a menace and a warning of something coming, the advent of some unspeakable dweller upon the threshold whose very shadow would blast my soul a freezing horror a freezing horror took possession of me i felt that my hair was rising my eyes were protruding my mouth was opened my tongue like leather the turmoil within my brain was such that something must surely snap i tried to scream and was vaguely aware of some hoarse croak which was my own voice but distant and detached from myself at the same moment in some effort of escape i broke through that cloud of despair had a glimpse of holmes's face white rigid drawn with horror the very look which i had seen upon the features of the dead it was that vision which gave me an instant of sanity and of strength i dashed from my chair threw my arms around my whole around holmes and together we lurched through the door and an instant afterward had thrown ourselves down upon the grass plot and were lying side by side conscious only of the glorious sunshine which was bursting its way through the hellish cloud of terror which had girt us which had girt us in uh i, I like that and do you know what it reminded yeah. me it reminded me of aldous huxley's um aldous huxley's beyond the doors of perception do you remember yeah, that you remember that word where he takes that, he, he, he writes, he sits down at his desk, he takes like half a gram of mescaline or something. Well, I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's some drug like that, you know, this um, transport, transformative drug, this, um, and it just, he writes down his reactions to what's going on. It's, it's a remarkable piece of nonfiction. And I, I really like that sort of spirit of, of inquiry here, because although it's madness to, to think that this could be the end of Holmes and Watson, it's also, it's also very much, in the desperate spirit of inquiry that that when he's at it and when he's in it is makes the best of him you know absolutely yeah and that, as again this is another scenes like that and him you know 
fessing up that, you know, that he didn't want to put Watson through that. He's sorry that he did that. But to me, that's what I meant by the dynamic in this in this particular story is so strong. Now, I didn't give it a five like you did. For some reason, uh, I just, for me, if I give something a five, I just need a little more more with Watson, just a little bit more of his agency. Um, he played along well with Holmes, and they, and they bounced off each other very well. But I just kind of want a little more agency, and that's why I withhold the full five. Fair enough. Yep, that's okay. That, that would make it a Baskerville five, in my opinion. Yes, I, I agree that there is a difference between this five and the Baskerville five, and I know it's not the canonical best. And maybe, maybe I went there because there's been a real, you know, it's been a dearth. long time. Yeah, dearth of that interesting partnership. And I was touched. I truly was touched reading this and getting that 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 scene from Holmes. You know, like I agree with what you're saying about Watson that he's not as involved. But he is still very present as the, you know, the the, the partner, I guess, there to is, use to borrow a term. To go into the investigation part of it, as well as bleeding into, bleeding back to the um, principles, I really find that there is some great catharsis in this story. Um, just the Watson, Holmes moments we already spoke about, uh, just, just as a reader, you know, Holmes, like, telling, you know, well... I didn't. I, no one fought. No one followed you or whatever. And then him saying, "Well, it's because I followed you." Like mm-hmm. they're just like, "Yeah, you know, like f, yeah. like you know, like America, fuck yeah, kind of, kind of." Built up. <laughs> Sherlock yeah. Holmes, f yeah, you know, like to to t- to this whole story, and then you get that even that we have so many stories so far now where Holmes lets the quote unquote perpetrator go because you know the moral reasons why he did what he did, and this story I felt earned an ending like that, and. I think as a reader, I was satisfied with the idea. Maybe it's a get, tap, t- tapping into my dark side of Trigenis, like just who killed his brothers, who, who who basically maddened his brothers and killed his own sister uh, out of spite. You know that something that he wouldn't let go of. Um, uh, the, the very fact that he did that, and you know, and then him him just like dying, sitting up in his chair. That was just a very fitting ending for that piece of shit, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I love that. I love that scene too. You know, like the 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 idea of him there being forced to experience what he did, and Sterndale watching him the entire time. Or or, yeah, but he, you know, he's a hunter, isn't he? He's not afraid of that. And now when when he explains it, when he explains his situation, that's why I think Holmes takes the law into his own hands. And you know, as as we've seen him do before. I like that. I think that's good. It just feels more. It just feels more. I think in terms of how the how how it goes into the writing of the story, uh, to me, uh, that just makes it more justified, in my opinion. And that's mm-hmm. another. Re- and that's the reason why, uh, since we're kind of going into the investigation now, I gave. Um, I actually gave the investigation a five on this story. Well, this is where we switch. I went four and a half there. Uh, oh. But that, hey, it doesn't matter. It's still a great mark, you know. I, I just felt that. Um, well, I don't know actually what I felt. We'll see what I felt. I'll the first time, first time, first time I read it, four point five. The second time I read it, I just kind of like I, I read it again a couple of days ago. Um, actually, no, I, I I read it again maybe a day or two ago, and I, I went back. I went to a five. Because okay. I, I, just, I just found that it's just so it's just very tight and taut. Maybe if I didn't go back and read it, I'd be at a four point five still. But um, I don't know. I just really, really enjoyed this story. Really enjoyed it. Well, I, I did too. I did too. And, 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 and the writing's fantastic. 
as, as well and how it was yeah. plotted, like all the dialogue, the character dynamics, the, how the investigation went. I liked how the investigation ended up um, them not knowing to do anything. I liked how Holmes was there in a believable fashion and how they went to him. There was that brought in some good character development. Uh, and then we, we got a really good case because of that as well, and an interesting case to solve. Um, and then and the moments, like really gothic moments, like going up to, 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 to the house, and then you see in the carriage, George and Owen, you know, like mad inside the, the carriage, and Watson all, all freaked out by it, you know? Like, there's this really great um, stuff like that. I have some points to make on the uh, environments, which is kind of like the atmosphere of the story in, in this view. So I'll go into that a bit de uh, detail once we get to the environs. Yeah, uh, the only thing I would say that maybe took away the the half mark um, is the the lack of explanation about this family squabble. Like it would have been helpful, I think, to find out why Treganus was was really after his family that way. Like all you heard was about money or like you know some business, but you don't you don't really know. And they fell out, and they fell mm -hmm. out. Yeah. And exactly. I guess it, maybe maybe I'm meant to see it as a bit of a MacGuffin. Like it doesn't matter what once the murder's committed, the murder is what you have to do. But it would still have been nice, given other stories where you have lesser characters and lesser lesser motivations. Sorry, not motivations. Lesser ends, which are info dumped within an inch of their lives. Here we don't get very much that could have been revealed, you know? Uh, that's a very fair statement to make. Um, uh, it won't change my end mark for no, that. No, but it doesn't have but, to. No, but I do feel that some fle fleshing out of the motives of um, Treganus, uh, Mormorty Treganish would, uh, to me, um, pro probably brought your mark, uh, to you, I should say, would probably have brought your mark over to a five. Mm -hmm. The same way that maybe a little bit more agency on Watson or for him would have brought you up to a five. So, you know, it goes both ways, right? It doesn't mean that yeah. our fives aren't, aren't fives because of the greatness of other features. It's just that for me or for you, whatever, it didn't quite hit the full marks. Okay. Per right. Perpetrators. What'd you do? What'd you say? What'd you think of this man, either Trigenis and do we even consider, uh, the professor, uh, a perpetrator or is he a secondary player? What is he, you know, how do we do this? What did you say? Um, on a on a completely like clinical level, I he I would say Sterndale is a, a perpetrator, but, and so is Draganis. So I kind of looped two perpetrators into one with with um, my view of the, of the perpetrators, and that's. But I kind of wanted a little more. Of, uh, I think what you talked about about that brought the investigation a little lower for you was I wanted more information on why Draganis did what he why Mortar Draganis did what he did. And that little missing bit of motivation, that key piece, um, brings everything down to a, a four for me. Um, the remainder of the four points all come from uh, Sterndale and how he fixed into the narrative very, very quickly, but in a very believable way. And I like the cathartic ending that he got, you know, like um, for a short story, uh, you know, only a certain amount of pages. They packed a novella, like a novella into a short story here. And I, I think he condensed it in a really good way. And the perpetrators, to me, came out, and even though it was tightly packed, they came out as a four for me in the end. Okay. Well, here we did differ a little bit. Uh, I I went for a three. Okay. I, I liked what these characters did. I liked what Marty does. But, again, the underwritten backstory and motivation for the crime, I really, really didn't buy into. This was very similar to how I felt about Schlesinger and his wife in the previous story. Their, mm -hmm. act, their acts were engaging. The madness, the poison, all of that was great, but I didn't get 
the the reason why, particularly in such an isolated place with so very little to lose in terms of staying close to your family. I, I didn't understand why he was doing this. Uh, I mean, a three is still a passing mark, but it isn't. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It kind of took me out. It took me out of him a little bit. Because Did you view Sterndale as a uh, as a perpetrator, or do you? No, have I didn't. More I've, I viewed cast? him as a, I viewed him as a supporting cast member. Uh, so that could probably also get yep. towards your, uh, your 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 lower number as well. It does. I think so. Yes. So I went for a three, and you went for a four, and that's just fine. We don't have to do much more. Although you know what, the Reverend is a pretty interesting character. He's not just a guy that shows up once. Uh, and if you watch the um, the Jeremy Brett adaptation, they do a really good job of making him uh, kind of like the glue that keeps a secret and also keeps the family and Holmes and Watson, you know, connected. Like it's, it's interesting the way his character is used there, maybe even improved upon than in the story. But, um, I definitely recommend that by the way, that episode is hilarious. Oh, okay. That's not what I was expecting. Oh, I was kind of expecting to be like scary, but okay. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, there are some really creepy elements to it, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's well acted and well performed and particularly when uh, Brett is under the influence of the drug, like they do some, <laughs> they do some wild things there, but nice. check, check it out. Check it out. I will for sure. Environment. What'd you do? What'd you, what'd you, what'd you think? Environment. I gave you it said a you had, yeah, you had, I you said you had four. some things there. Okay. I gave it a four. Um, just for this part here. Um, Thus it was at the early spring of the year we found ourselves together in a small cottage near Paul du Bay at the further extremity of the Cornish Peninsula. It was a singular spot, and one peculiarly well suited to the grim humor of my patient. From the windows of our little whitewashed house, which stood high upon a grassy headland, we looked down upon the whole sinister semicircle of Mounts Bay, that old death trap of sailing vessels with its fringe of black cliffs and surge-swept reefs on which innumerable seamen have met their end. With a northerly breeze that lies placid and sheltered, inviting the storm-tossed craft to tack into it for rest and protection then comes a sudden swirl round of the wind the blustering gale from the southwest the dragging anchor the lee shore and the last battle and the creaming breakers the wise mariner stands far out from that evil place mm. on the land side or surroundings were as somber as on the sea it was it was a country of rolling moors lonely and dun-colored with an occasional church tower to mark the site of some old world village in every direction upon these moors there were traces of some varnished race which had passed utterly away, and left as its sole record strange monuments of stone, irregular mounds which contained their burned ashes of the dead, and curious earthworks which hinted at prehistoric strife. Prehistoric strife, uh, primal in, in, in imagery, you know, Cain versus Abel, uh, these sort of like the, the mythos, I think, of, of, of is, is, is portrayed in the environs in this story, and the atmospheres that that it conjures uh, work so well with the narrative. It does. Yeah, it really does. Uh, you know, something I'm going to pick up on, a couple of things I'm going to pick up on what you said. The first is that perhaps I was wrong to criticize that guy for describing these areas as moors and moorland because you just Sorry, quoted Colin. that twice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I put my hand up for that one. Apologies. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. The atmosphere here seeps into the story and I went 4.5. I thought oh. that I thought that this was almost as good as I would want from the environment. I I you know the way I feel, right? Maybe I'm quite easy to read. An external environment can do a lot, but I need an internal decoration too. I need something like a you know, I would have liked a little bit more than just the description uh of um 
Tregenis sitting in the room with his windows that looked out onto the lawn. That was kind of like almost step out onto the lawn. I really liked that description, but that was kind of like the only interior space I could really properly picture. The rest of mm. it is awesome. The The Neolithic stuff particularly gives it gives the whole feeling of this place an evil sort of vibe, you know, and... Um, yeah, it's like your modern ship that you know. It's like when they're showing uh, uh, the bay and mm-hmm. the ships having caught in the in the in, uh, they're at the mercy of nature. And even like in these towns, we have like these manses and houses and whatnot and estates. Uh, it's, again, it's the mercy of nature here, right? It's the law of the jungle, and that's when you bring in a big game hunter character in here to be like the force of justice, you know. So uh, to me, I think the the description of or possibly the description of uh, the interiors of the houses, even of where where, where they found the 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 uh, dead sister and the and the Madden siblings, uh, the brother and th- the the two brothers, I found was very kind of basic in the description and very clinical because it's a crime scene, and that connects to the more to the modern world and this thing still happened because of the dark forces that surround them, mm-hmm. right? And this gives into the impression of like the devil's foot, the uh, the, the, the the diabolical that exists in nature that you get that kind of like that Lovecraftian moment where they cross over to almost like another dimension with those drugs when when, when you know like when Holmes lights a lamp and Watson and him are doused um, and they have like those visions that they're almost like Lovecraftian like opening up a, another to the, to the other side and seeing dark eldritch horrors you know what I mean mm. so to me it's, it's the atmosphere of of the unknown and the envi- and the outside environment and not the houses and the buildings that are important. I appreciate everything you're saying. And my question now then is why a four? I don't know. Like I, you obviously, I, I if, if you loved it that much, you must've felt that there was something missing to take a point away. Yeah. Uh... You're arguing with the vehemence of a five, but you're only scoring a four. So what, what is it that made you, if not the interior lack of, or the lack of interior, what is it? Ah, you like, see, I'm, there's something, yeah. there's something there's, missing, there's, isn't there? there? There's, there's something missing. There's something missing. There is. There is something missing. So there, yeah, okay, I'll pinpoint it then. And and I think you brought this. I think you brought this to me. Uh, the the idea of this outside primitive dark force somehow emanating into that into the house uh, where the murder was some more kind of atmosphere of creepiness than what we're told, I think, would probably have gone over the top. So I would say, fairly, it's a 4.5, but not not a full full 5. So what what do you want me to do? I'm going to say my initial mark at 4, regardless. Cool. But it could be a 4.5 easily. All right. Did you another interesting note here about the environment? You know Mount's Bay, right? Which is what their holiday cottage looks over. Yes. Is also the setting for Gilbert and Sullivan's Pirates of Penzance. Oh, interesting. HMS Pinafore and all that. Ah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Cuz yeah, the town of Penzance also looks over Mount's Bay. Okay. Interesting. So, I could have selected a ton of great tunes for uh, for this one, but well, you know, I am the very modern of a very model of a modern major general. You know that one? <laughs> yeah, pa- yeah, that's from the. What um, was that? What was that movie? What was that? What was that movie that came out in the eighties that like was a knockoff or a re- remake of that? It was like a, a commercial film though, of the ilk. I, it, it was like of the uh, of the the Princess Bride type film. Oh, I, I can't recall. Ice but, pirates? I don't know. 
Was it? Was it? Are you at your computer? You, yeah, you get you get your internet on. Can you just look up and see if there's a movie called like Pirates Movie or the Pirate Movie or some something? This is not really important for the Adventure of the Devil's Foot, but it's kind of it's like an, bugging me. Pirates. Hook? What? I don't know. No, um, not Hook. Go to uh, <clears throat> go to the IMDb. Yeah. Okay, just a second here. This is really important research we're doing here. The pirate movie? Maybe. What year? 1982. Maybe. Who's in it? Look, look into it. What's it saying? Christy McNichol, Christopher Atkins, Ted Hamilton. I don't know any of these guys. Okay. What does it say? I, like, what does it look like? I've the got too many windows. The ship sailed the high seas, encountering other pirates from other ships. The boy from the ship ends up having to save his girlfriend, who was kidnapped by a bunch of other pirates. That sounds like it. What's the writing credit on it? Because the one I'm thinking is a read. W.S. W.S. Gilbert, Operetta. Ah, uh, that's it. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It's called the it's called the pirate movie. Yeah. So okay, the pirate movie. Anyway, right. Well, thanks for that. Really important Holmesian scholarship there just took place. Uh, <clears throat> secondary characters. I went for a four here because I included the character of Doctor Sterndale. Uh, I've got a little note here on the African hunter adventurer. If you would like me to share it, because I thought that given the public's fascination with that type of figure at the time, it could be interesting. Also, given the fact that Dr. Challenger is a character from Doyle's other work. Oh, yeah. I thought maybe this would be of interest. Uh, it's not too long. Don't worry. You can find it here somewhere. Hello, uh, here we are. Several other great explorers of Africa may have inspired Sterndale to choose that continent as his, as his traveling grounds. The famed David Livingston, who you cited earlier, Josh, uh, was a Scottish missionary whose 30-year African odyssey started in South Africa as a member of the London Missionary Society in 1841. His part in the discovery of Lake Ngami in 1849 earned him a gold medal from the British National Geographic Society. In 1853, saying, quote, I shall open up a path into the interior or perish, end quote, Livingston set off with a small party of Africans reaching Luanda after a grueling six-month expedition. Making his way home homeward along the Zambezi River, Livingston discovered Victoria Falls in 1855 and became a hero in Britain, having inspired public curiosity about the uncharted wilds of Africa. Named British consul at Quillamane, he returned to Africa in 1857 to explore the Zambezi region in 1857-63, but his determination to uncover the source of the Nile brought Livingston his greatest celebrity. Arriving in Africa in 1866, Livingston discovered Lake Maruri, Mawiru, Mawiru and Lake Bangwaluru, Bangwalu, uh, my apologies for butchering those names before reaching okay. uh, Ngawe again apologies for butchering that name farther west in Africa than any European had ever traveled illness forced Livingston to return to Ujiji on Lake Tanganyika and was it was there that Henry Stanley a New York Herald reporter sent to find the missing explorer and bring him food and medicine so there he came upon him in November 10th, 1871 and uttered the immortal words, Dr. Livingston, I presume. Stanley mm -hmm. joined him on a journey 
but was unable to persuade Livingston to leave the continent. Uh, Spicking ahead, Livingston pressed onward, still seeking the source of the Nile. He died in 1873 in the village of Chitambo in what is now Zambia, and was buried with great ceremony at Westminster Abbey. Although his heart remained behind in Africa, having been removed by his African servants and buried in the soil there. Far more successful in locating the source of the Nile was John Speck, who, with Sir Richard Button, Burton, discovered Burton. Lake Tanganyika in February 1858. Journeying on alone, Speck reached the lake believed to be the legendary source of the Nile on July 30th. He named it Lake Victoria and was honored by the National Geographic Society for his efforts. Burton disputed Speck's claim, but Speck, on return journey to Lake Victoria in 1862, was able to identify the Nile's exit from the lake on the spot he named Ripon Falls. Speck was killed by his own gun on a hunting expedition in 1864. The African hunter-adventurer was a popular subject of books as well, such as the works of H. Ryder Haggard, recording the tales of Alan Quatermain, the hero of 14 books, including King Solomon's Mines, the latter one of his, the latter one of the best-selling books of the 19th century. Quatermain, the quintessential great white adventurer, became the subject of numerous films and most recently has been revealed by writer Alan Moore to have been a member of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, an alliance yep. of secret agents probably formed by Mycroft Holmes. Oh yeah, that's right. That, uh, that, um, there was a movie that, that, that adapted that, that graphic novel. Yeah. Anyway, Sean Connery, right? Sean Connery played Alan Quartermain. He did. Yes, he did. He did indeed. Yeah. That was, I think, his last film credit, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah. Anyway, it was one of his last film credits. I'm not going to say any more about Sterndale because I feel like we said enough in our summary, and we're looking to wrap this up in the next thirty or forty minutes. So I gave him a four. He's solid. He's fun. He's got good motivation. He's got uh, a really interesting presence on the moor, like a stranger that's kind of there. People are familiar with him and they accept him. He's a bit of a celebrity, you know. He is a bit of a Hemingway figure, I guess, in that sense. When he's around, they kind of take notice of him, but also give him his space. You know, it's it's yeah. cool. Uh, I went four, which brings my total to 21 so a high scoring story for me good good i gave a four to that as well um i um Serendale, i agree on all your your assessment of him uh the victory round hay he appeared more than once he was interesting um uh, overall like even like the mad the, the crazy brothers and throw in uh, into the pot uh more and more Treganis as well. I think it was a very interesting cast of characters that worked together well. So uh, then they served the story well. So four for me is um, to match yours. All right. Well, that uh, brings you to 21.5. And Ooh. I think it's fair to say that we both saw that story eye to eye. We both enjoy it. And it could be one that ends up on our list of recommended stories when this is all said and done, huh? I would say so. Yeah. I think I was just reading the story. I knew I liked it. Yeah. So here comes the real question here. Mm -hmm. Um, we're going to go now in a moment into uh, the His Last Bow, the epilogue of the His Last Bow collection. Um, I'm really curious to see what our thoughts are on this on this particular one. But first, of course, we have to get our um, musical selection. I choose this coffin number two. Oh, we're not in coffins anymore. You can now choose uh, oil lamp number one or two. Let's light oil lamp number two and see where it takes oil us. Lamp <laughs> oil lamp number two. Okay, you've selected a classic uh, I'll let Alice Cooper talk about poison. Ha <laughs> ha. No thematic relevance here, folks. Just a good rock song. Some minor thematic relevance, but don't expect Incredible. the lyrics to tell you much. Unless, of course, you take love as being some family tie. Thank <laughs> you. 
suppose from a slash fiction perspective, there is some thematic relevance to this. If this could be Watson's desire towards Holmes. Uh, I would say maybe the unrequited. Oh, the unrequited love between Sterndale and and uh, Brenda. Yeah, I guess and Brenda. Okay. So how does the poison work then? It leads to poison in the end. <laughs> You're right. It does. Well done. You made it. You did it. You tied it up. In the spirit of brevity, I don't think we need Alice Cooper shouting for another two minutes and 40 seconds. <laughs> yeah, so you were saying his last bow. Ep epilogue. Yes. What do you got? Publication history, my good man. So, his last bow, The Wars of Sherlock Holmes is the full title. Uh, first published in The Strand, September 1917, and in Collier's the same month. Goodreads, people say, it's Holmes. Enough said, said one person. Definitely not guess, the place I guess to start that was for, enough said. Apparently not. Uh, definitely not the place to start for aspiring Sherlock fans. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, uh, I think so too. I don't think it denigrates his story or the, no. or the writing, but I think that, yeah, that's definitely a good point. doesn't really review anything, though. One person said, although well-written, yet short, with all the quality you expect from a Conan Doyle, it doesn't feel like Sherlock Holmes. True. Um, but in a way, it does, in the end. But we'll get into that. Nice story. Simple. Without any drama. Mm, yeah. Okay. Oh, brilliant, says another. First time Sherlock was dealing with international affairs. Um, mm. Incorrect. <laughs> Yeah, just call it what it is, right? Wrong. <laughs> yeah. Was it, though, is my footnote. So, tell us all about The Last Bow. It's the eve of war, and Germans have already invaded the UK. Well, in a manner of speaking. Von Bork, a German agent, is getting ready to leave Old Blighty for the fatherland with a safe full of pigeonholed intelligence. He and his associate, Baron von Herling, are chewing the fat over the naivety of Britain the value of their collected data, and the merits of their top informant, an Irish-American named Altamont, with a breeze of self-congratulation. The coastal setting and narrative mood are equally portentous, and the establishment of subject works well here, almost like a Fleming short story. In the opening of its tale, Doyle, the Victorian writer, is nearly entirely absent, replaced instead with a pre-modernist observer, and I like this. It's also third person, but we'll get into that. I guess war can do this to a writer. Give perspective. Force variance. Unlike other home stories, this unconventional introduction is the author's clear intention to do something different. Unlike an ear in a cardboard box or a jewel stuck in the craw of a goose, war is no laughing matter. Now how exactly the great detective will fit into this, it's yet to be revealed, but we know that he must. Suffice it to say, 40% of the story works in this preambling way. Von Herling eventually leaves the scene, and Martha, von Bork's housekeeper, turns out the lights to retire. Shortly after Altamont, the informant, arrives. Described as, quote, a tall, gaunt man of 60 with clear-cut features and a small goatee beard, 
End quote. Altamont is less refined and more colloquial than the British readership sensibilities of the time. The very picture of American bluntness, to be more exact. And he doesn't shy away from prodding von Bork with sarcasm and jives before demanding more money for his work in an environment where spies are being swatted like flies. His impetuousness is clearly offensive to the German, but von Bork knows that Altamont can deliver, and has delivered, goods, so he bears the affront of conversation. Earning no less than 500 pounds for his latest job, which, by the way, is about $100,000 in today's money, Altamont hands over the latest booty, a paper-wrapped copy of, wait for it, the Practical Handbook of Bee Culture. He has only a moment... He has only a moment to recognize a ruse before, from behind his chair and over his face, a chloroformed rag is pressed. Things go dark for Von Bork. Exit, modernist vibe, enter Holmes and Watson drinking Von Bork's imperial tokay. Even though it will surprise very few readers to learn that Altamont was Holmes in disguise, nor that Watson was his chauffeur, it's fun to see them playing the espionage game and returning this way. The clues were all there all the whole time, though. Most notably, the mention of the housekeeper's light turning off coinciding with the arrival of a car, Altamont's, the strangely curious accent noted by Von Bork, and of course, the beekeeping book, the biggest sign of Holmes's retirement busyness in the quiet Sussex countryside. We learn that Holmes has come out of retirement to help His Majesty's government for a couple of years. Notice I'm saying His Majesty now. <laughs> Victoria behind. While his name is not mentioned, it's feasible enough to imagine Mycroft's motivating touch upon this case. And here I may agree with some of the Sherlockian scholars that we were talking about earlier, Josh, that, you know, like to believe the bigger picture here of government intervention. Anyway, impressively, Holmes has been firmly committed to this task. No ordinary plant, he tells Watson how he spent his last two years building this identity for himself. Quote, I started my pilgrimage in Chicago, graduated in an Irish secret society at Buffalo, gave serious trouble to the constabulary at Skibberdine, and so eventually caught the eye of a subordinate agent of Von Bork, who recommended me as a likely man. Holmes called Watson in to help as a heavy on the night, a supporting role that our doctoring friend knows only too well. When Von Bork comes to, Holmes plays a game of guess who with the Prussian by offering a list of credentials. There is only one man, Von Bork states in amazement. And of course he's right. Holmes screws with them a little more before admitting that his gripe isn't personal, equating their play to a sportsman's pursuit where one wants to win just a little bit more than the other. Well, the two friends load Von Bork's resisting carcass into a car, but they don't immediately go to turn him in. Instead, they pause for some time upon the terrace to enjoy what Holmes reckons might be, quote, the last quiet talk they should ever have. The full details of the chat are withheld from us, which I feel is appropriate enough. But we do learn that Watson is heading back to the army in some shape or form, conceivably to practice surgery again in support of the impending war. Holmes foreshadows that there's an east wind coming, such a wind as never blew on England yet, and a good many of us will wither before its blast. Let these pro lest these prophetic words close the narrative on a somber tone, Doyle allows Holmes to drop the curtain on himself and Watson with a token of capitalist gain. A time-sensitive check for 500 pounds is burning a hole in his pocket and they'll need to hurry to cash in before Germany learns that Von Bork has been hoodwinked. What they got up to after that check? Uh, anybody's guess, really. And so it ends, chronologically at least. The Holmes and Watson adventures. One collection of stories remains, yet to be written, but all of them will be set before this time in the canon's history. So we can only wonder why. Did Doyle not know how to write a post-war Holmes? Had the world changed really too much when he eventually returned to him in 1921? 
Had the small figures of Holmesian villainy yielded their scrawny hold on readers and become underwhelming in the wake of the faceless collective terrors that war brought to the world? <laughs> These are all worth consideration, but perhaps best left for us until our work is truly done. For now, at least, Doyle gives us an effective reunion and into the sunset double team with this epilogue. It's quiet and short and predictable, but it's also cute. Let's just be thankful for some freshness here. Yeah, that's very well said, sir. Very well said. Aha. So, pipes it is. That was that. That was me puffing. Oh, of course, yes. Well, let's let's just start then uh, on a narrative point. Even though we usually start with our principles, what do you make of the third person point of view? Uh, with the exception of uh, the Marzarin Stone, this is the only story in the canon written in the third person. This it was jarring. Mm. I will admit that at first, um, and I was kind of annoyed that it was very. I guess. I, maybe just because I'm just used to different perspectives and narratives and different shows or books I read and whatnot that I, I, I was kind of annoyed at first, but then I kind of got into it because I was guessing which I was, was Van Bork Sherlock Holmes was the chauffeur Sherlock Holmes. Um, it's not until you get the description of when Altamount arrives, then automatically, you know, that it's him. Right. And, uh, I enjoyed this story. Um, I like it as like as like as, as you said, it's kind of a, a right off into the uh, not into the sunset, but it's kind of like keep fighting the battle kind of thing and keep doing w what they're doing. They're both going back to their respective duties in their lives. Holmes is uh, is helping his country in his own way, using his detective skills for espionage, um, po possibly by Mycroft's insistence. Um, and meanwhile, Watson is going back into I guess his his, his first love, uh, the army. So I think it's I think at the time when this book came out, um, World War One was the first world war. The Great War was something that enveloped the entire world of at the time. And it was dark. It was a dark time. People were gloomy about the fate of the world. And there was a very apocalyptic. Um, if you look at if you read like All Quiet on the Western Front or The Wars by Timothy Finley years later, World War One has a very apocalyptic feel to it, even more so than I think World War Two, because this this is a battle about people, humans fighting each over for greed and power, and I can see why people would view this as a very apocalyptic kind of setting, mm -hmm. and. To me, that whole the east wind blowing kind of thing, it conjures up like almost elements of fantasy literature in its own way and what it they're does, going yeah. into and what they're going into. How did you and... read that, by the way? How, how did you read that line? Did you read it as I did? And I, from everything I have seen, I've read the line wrong. Uh, I interpret it to suggest because the story is written in it was written in 1917, but set before just at the advent of war, right? Um, yes. I read it as Holmes telling Watson that, you know, a lot of pain is on its way, you know? Yeah. And this, it, the, the East Wind is metaphorical for the, the threat from the continent coming from the East. Like that, that's, yes. kind of, that's kind of how I read it. But the, the, the scholarship that I've encountered is actually suggesting that the line is meant to be interpreted uh, alternatively, inversely, in fact, by saying or suggesting that the East Wind is what's going to cleanse the nation of its death and of, and of everything. How do you read it? How do you read that line? It's quite ambiguous. It's that they make that interpretation. When I think of the East Wind, I, I guess because uh, 
if you read um, what is it? Um, remember the title of the book now? Ah, uh, yes, uh, Dickens' Bleak House. One of the characters, um, I forget his, I forget his name now because there's a lot of characters in that book. Uh, he ha- keeps, he has like an art, uh, he he has like a, a like rheumatism, and he always has bad days when the wind blows in the east, and that's when he didn't, he didn't want to talk to anybody. Like that was the days when this very kind man could not deal with anybody because the wind blows in the east, and and then and and, and that that meant that he don't go near him. He's upset. He's he's, he's bothered. Uh, so I always found when that that line, uh, an east wind is blowing, that either reminded me of something from like from a fantasy uh, story, or it reminded me of that line in, in Bleak House. Hmm. I know no one, no one's not even going to make that connection uh, for those who haven't read the book, but that's how I that, that that's how I heard it, and I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised if I mean Doyle's read Dickens, so. Oh, of course, yeah. Right. Well, uh, what about? The perpetrator or the principals, sorry. The principals, I was great seeing them. Um, it was cool to see them at this at this location. Going, yeah, Holmes and Watson. You know, even in World, even at the dawn of World War One, they're still there doing what they do. That was really cool. That gave me a great feeling. But overall, I think it was kind of empty in its own kind of way. Like it was a nice nod, but as in terms of a, a deep story involvement of the principals, it wasn't really that great. It was cool that there was, you know. At, separated and they're back in the army and they're still working together i mean that was really nice but to me it doesn't warrant anything above a 3.5 to me well no i gave it a 3.5 uh, i do think however that doyle is aware of that as well which is why he makes the story deliberately shorter and it's also described as an epilogue you know i i do yes. think that i do i do it's not really a story even no, in it's the like end, a scene really. isn't it it's it's a, it's a sequence a vignette almost. yeah a vignette yeah that's a nice way to describe it a vignette it is indeed a vignette um, so yeah, we're on the same page there. Three point five. What Holmes does and the conversations that they have. I mean, there's some touching moments of friendship, but they—it's a private conversation. We don't know what they say to each other, and that's fine. I don't think we should have it. You know, that's whatever. That's obviously what Doyle's wanting is to leave us at the time. You know, with a, an idea that these guys have come back together but are now going apart again. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's that's all great. That's all fine. Apparently. Great. There's, it, was, it was a good nostalgia. Yeah. Now, according to the chronologists, there were 11 years that separated Holmes and Watson from each other. So the Creeping Man, chronologically, was the most recent story, which takes place in 1903 when the two of them were together. This story takes place in 1914. So there's a span of time of 11 years where the two hadn't been together. And yet, Interesting. And yet they were together enough where one could call on the other to get him to drop everything. Uh, well, of course, that shouldn't surprise us, should it? I wonder, uh, the because the, I guess he went back into his practice afterwards and Holmes became like his beekeeper self, like living out in the country and maybe they visit each other back and forth, you know? I, I, could, see, mm-hmm. I could see that happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, when did Holmes officially retire? Maybe the casebook will answer some of that. Maybe, maybe so. Uh, but 1903, yeah, we might get our answer there, you know? If that's the last one that takes place, the creeping man in 1903, and then there's 11 years separate, maybe that's when he goes down to do his beekeeping. We'll find out in that story. Very possible. Um, I don't have a lot. I mean, I have feelings about the story, but I don't think we should do it to death because no. it is it is an epilogue. It is a vignette, and it's a nice little piece. Um, it you know it works on a lot of levels, doesn't it? I think I, I think I think it was written um, 
it was it was written well. Yeah. I think that the principles, the investigation, well, there was much investigation, but in, in terms of story writing, uh, it was solid. It was well put together. Um, the now the perpetrators, not much detail, but you know we got into them a little bit. Evil Germans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, environs. There was some really great. There was a really great um, uh, description at the beginning of the story. There, I just wanted to um, read it out to you. Um, Yeah, just the, the, I think the, uh, the apocalyptic imagery of, of uh, Europe on the brink of war here is just really well done. It was nine o'clock at night upon the 2nd of August, the most terrible August in the history of the world. One might have thought already that God's curse hung heavy over a degenerate world, for there was an awesome hush and a feeling of vague expectancy in the sultry and stagnant air. The sun had long set, but one blood-red gash like an open wound lay, lay low in the distance of west. Above, the stars were shining brightly, and below, the lights of the shipping glimmered in the bay. The two famous Germans stood beside the stone parapet of the garden walk with a long, low, heavily gabled house behind them, and they looked down upon the broad sweep of the beach at the foot of the great chalk cliff on which von Bork, like some wandering eagle, had perched himself four years before. They stood with their heads closed together, talking in low, confidential tones. From below, the two glowing ends of their cigars might have been the smoldering eyes of some malignant fiend looking down in the darkness. Way to dehumanize the Germans, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. That's all I have to say. Yeah, really. Yeah, they're the other here. Hey, like they're, this, this is like we're getting into fantasy imagery here. Um, propagandic imagery for sure. Um, this is why I gave the environs actually the highest mark uh, of, of of the pipes for this story. I gave it a four for the environs. I, I did it too. I gave I gave the environs a four as well. I agree with you. I think they work. They're tight and they're secure and they're effective for the story and what you know what needs to be established as a more serious or somber atmosphere. I like the imagery of saying on the chalk cliffs. We know automatically they're talking about Dover mm-hmm. and and. Uh, and it kind of reminded me of uh, like the eagle imagery reminded me of like, you know, who was the first um, conqueror to come to England through hit the Caesar. White Caesar, he invaded. Right. So this is Britain. This is this is and this is the Kaiser, which is, you know, the, the German <laughs> bastardization. Of, it all comes back to J.C. It all comes back to J.C. Indeed, it does. So this is like the next invasion of England and the idea of the cliff and looking down and the, and the ocean. This is like Europe and England on the precipice. So really great imagery to start the story off, showing you that there are people in control here that we don't want to be in control. But then, you know, the rug gets pulled underneath them and it's Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes doing what they do, you know. So mm-hmm. it was just, it's just a great nostalgic trip. And the environs, uh, how the environs were written for this particular story worked really well for it. And yeah. that's why I give that a four and I give every everything else in this story a three. 3.5 just because it was written well but it also had that little douse of nostalgia and fun and uh just a, a great coda i think to, to sherlock to the sherlock holmes adventures chronologically anyway chronologically yeah well um i'm glad you shared that little bit uh it saves time on on a reference here uh i would like though to read this this is from andrew lysett's biography of conan doyle because it's another one of the texts that i've been working through and as you know, Conan Doyle visited the front lines, and I'm not sure how front the front lines were, but certainly he's recorded as having visited the lines in, of battle and, and speak, spoke to many uh, soldiers and whatnot. He like a lot of people did. He did some investigative yes. journalism. Did he? Or? Yeah, and also by 1914, I guess it would be like Bob Hope going on, you know, doing the comedy US shows. Show. Yeah, yeah, exactly, that type of stuff. So anyway, I just thought I'd read this because it kind of explains where his head was in terms of this story. When he finally made it to the Argonne, 
Arthur was taken aback when the French general Georges Humbert asked him abruptly and presumably not too seriously what Sherlock Holmes was doing for the war effort. At the time, he could only stammer that his detective had grown too old for active service, but when he returned home, he took time off from his history to pen his last bow, in which Holmes emerges from retirement in August of 1914 to nail a German master spy about to flee the country with British secrets. This slight propagandist story is interesting for its insight into Arthur's Celtic identity. He labours his usual points about Irish perfidy as Holmes passes himself off as a fiery anti-British Irish-American in order to win the spy's confidence. He then negates this effect by giving his detective the nom de guerre Altamont, which was his father's middle name. This underlined his confusion about whether the Irish are friends or foes, and how the detective spent several years developing his cover as a radical firebrand in the US and Ireland is not clear. Nevertheless, after being published in The Strand in September of 1917, his last bow was uh, provided a topical conclusion to another collection of home stories published the following month under the same appropriately terminal name by John Murray, which had taken over Smith, Elder, following the suicide of the gangling Re- Reginald Smith in December of 1916. Arthur's, uh, Arthur's approach to his last bow was coloured by his support on return from France for Roger Caismont, whose Irish nationalism had taken him quickly from respected British diplomat to condemned traitor awaiting execution in Pentonville Prison. As was clear, in 1913, Caseman had been prepared to court the Germans in order to rid Ireland of the British. But his, yes. attempt, but his attempts to raise an Irish battalion in Germany in the early years of the war had not been successful. His spirits rose when he began to hear encouraging news of an imminent Irish upbring, uprising. But after he had prevailed on his German hosts to send arms to the rebels, his submarine failed to rendezvous with the vessel carrying a shipment to the west coast of Ireland. On the 21st of April, he and two fellow conspirators washed up exhausted on a Kerry shore where, three days before the Easter uprising in Dublin, he was arrested, brought to London, and charged with high treason. And, and his fate? Uh, Presumably shot, probably. He, his punishment was rather unjust. Uh, let me see. I'm um, just reading ahead. Da, 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 da. Yeah, they. He was hung. Ah. Uh-huh. Third of August, he was hung on the or hanged on the third of August. Yeah, that was the Easter Rising too. I mean, that's where um there were some people like famous uh, people during the Easter Rising were in prison. Like, well, some were, most of them were hung, but like guys like uh, Demon de Valera, uh, Irish American who was a big part of the IRA, mm-hmm. uh, beginning or the Irish Republican Brotherhood as they were known, and Michael Collins, uh, yeah. who later on actually betrayed the IRA when he went with the um. That deal, I forget what it's called, but it, it basically was called the Irish Free State, like in 1921 or 22, where uh, it was submitted to home rule by England, but it still gave independence to the Irish and the IRA basically splintered and believed that, you know, this is not, we're not taking this concession. And that's why Michael Collins was killed afterwards. Yeah, and you know, all of this stuff was quite interesting for me to... Um, I, I did a project on Michael Collins when I was early for years of university. So the Easter Uprising and stuff, you know, I, I, I knew enough about, I felt, to, to converse. But I was interested to learn uh, about Germany's role in the Uprising, like more detail. Yeah. Just let me share you this little, little, little note. Even though the outbreak... Because I, I think this also plays into these the, the Irish sentiment in Altamont, you know, the, the, the figure that Holmes assumes... Even even though the outbreak of World War I effectively negated Parliament's 1914 passage of home rule, or self-government for Ireland, the notion continued to be fiercely resisted by Unionists and Protestants in Ulster, who preferred outright independence to inclusion in the British Union. Opposition, Ulster being Northern Ireland, correct? Yes, yeah. yeah. 
Opposition was also strong among Irish Catholics, motivating Arthur Griffith, a former member of the revolutionary Fenian Society, to found Sinn Féin, we ourselves, in Gaelic, a cultural organisation dedicated to preserving Irish traditions and language. Germany was sympathetic to the anti-British sentiment, supplying some arms to two insurgent militia forces, the Ulster Volunteers and the Dublin-based Irish Volunteers, the military arm of Sinn Féin and the precursor to the Irish Republican Army. In the so-called Easter Rising of 1916, which Germany aided through the manipulation of Sir Roger Casement, violence finally erupted in a week's worth of fighting in Dublin. The overwhelmed rebellion forces were put down, but Irish support for the movement swelled after the British government executed leaders of the opposition. And I know that ties into what uh, Lysett was writing there in the biography on Conan Doyle, but it's interesting, isn't it, to see how this kind of pre-war history or concurrent war history is filtering into this story about a bigger picture. Yeah, absolutely. You get like the Irish uh, d- disenchantment and hatred of England, to be, to be more precise. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have, you know, the Scottish, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's making fun of the Irish in his own kind of way to emphasize his own his own Irish, his own Scottish heritage because of the the, the middle name of his father, Altamount, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have on top of that uh, the politics of World War One, the Germans involving the Irish. It's a uh, it's a very layered propagandic story. But to me, it doesn't come off as an overly propaganda story. Instead, it comes off as a strong exercise in nostalgia and appreciation for Sherlock Holmes. And the yeah. propaganda gets kind of buried, which is real, which which I think serves the story very well. I think it does too, particularly as a postmark, you know, to to what we're reading. Uh, and there are some neat little things in here too, like uh, I, I learned about uh, what toke is. It's a sweet wine, yeah. sweet white wine produced in, Hung- in a Hungarian area around the town of toke the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains. Huh. And uh, and then of course, you know, there's the whole vintage uh, research line that took me into uh, the Esterhousies and all sorts of other uh, important um, uh, German and uh, yeah, there were German, Hungarian... Uh, Bratislavan, I'm looking at it now, Bulgarian lines of uh, research about toke and how the how the grape varieties change from country to country and then how it becomes something else here and, you know, <laughs> the, the, the vintage in the palace of so-and-so. It, it's quite interesting, but I'm not going to... It's not interesting enough that we got to read it here, you know? Google toke, um, people, and you'll yeah, find some, you some interesting facts. You will, you will indeed. Um, here's our, our, our favorite part of the show, one of your favorite... Um, Parts of the show, Josh, is when I give you what I deem to be the craziest Sherlockian uh, introduction, or not introduction, inclusion. And inclusion. here I've got it for you. In her essay, uh, The Singular Adventures of Martha Hudson, or his essay, sorry, uh, The Singular Adventures of Martha Hudson, Vincent Starrett advances a controversial theory, the BFG, that theory being that Martha was actually Mrs. Hudson. That's what I was thinking, landlady. actually. Did were you? Or were you, yeah. so, were you? Oh, well, shit. Maybe it's not so crazy then. I was thinking, is that Mrs. Hudson? But then okay. she said, but then Holmes <laughs> kind of dismissed her afterwards. So I didn't think it was Mrs. Hudson. Well, it didn't really dismiss her because he did say, we'll get you a Claridge's tomorrow. Oh, yeah, that's right. Do, yeah. you, think, do you think that maybe Vincent's onto something? I thought it was bonkers, but maybe. You know what? Anyway. Maybe you think of it. Her, she she began slowly putting up with Holmes, and then all of a sudden, you know, like in uh, in the empty house, she's moving that dummy around, avoiding sniper fire. Yeah. You know, just just <laughs> maybe, just maybe her patriotism on the home front. You know, hmm. she she might be taking part in it too. He might, he might have recruited her. Yeah, but she would have had to have been a housekeeper for him for four years. Yeah. Well, well, that's the thing is maybe they knew about something was going on, and Holmes. Uh, or maybe Holmes found out about Von Bork through Mar- through through Miss Hudson or something. 
Like I think this, I think this is a, I think this crowd is up to no good. Said so he sends him a, sends him a letter. You know All what right. I mean? Okay. Well, hey, hey, whatever the, whatever the, whatever the case, uh, what your fanboy projection or not, um, a later publication, William Hyder's uh, The Martha Myth, apparently debunks this previous Vincent Starrett's essay idea quite successfully, according to uh. Les Klinger. So, you know, maybe we've got to hold both of them up and read them both. But it's interesting that your brain went there. Mine didn't. But what, what my brain did tip off on was when the light switched. I knew there was an insider then. You know, the, the, because we've seen this before, you know, flick a light or show a card or put the candle in the window type thing. And that would give a sign. We've seen yeah. this before in the canon. So I wasn't I wasn't surprised to see that. But OK, cool. Well, your final score on it then, my friend, was 18 and mine was 17.5. This has been a nice close day for the two of us. These three stories have all matched up. Yeah, it was a, it was, it was a very um, with, the, with the exception of some some kind of stupidity at, with the car, with Lady Carfax. Uh, I think overall it's been a fun ride in, in, uh, at, in, in, the, in the last third of uh, his last bow. It has. Okay. Well, I guess that just, uh, you know, there's nothing left for us to do then but to uh, get one final musical selection. What's it going to be? Is it going to be... Um... What's in this jug of, co- of Toke? Yeah, Toke 1 or Toke 2? <laughs> toke 2. Toke, you've gone two right down the line today. Toke two, my friend, is a Dusty Springfield ballad. Learn to say goodbye, and I, I quite like this one because it's something that obviously Doyle is trying to learn how to do. He's trying to learn how to say goodbye to these characters, <laughs> and we, we've also got, of course, the uh, the characters themselves who are trying to say goodbye, and readers too. You know, we've all been trying to do this for some time. Maybe though, for nineteen seventeen, this felt quite real to everybody who was involved. Uh, it doesn't feel real to me because I know I've got another 12 stories to read and I'm looking at yeah. it on, on my bookshelf. But I, th- I think this captures the uh, the sentiment, e- even if it's a little saccharine, at the end of the story. It'd be more fitting almost if, 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 if you chose um, A Long Way to Tipperary. When I close my eyes I can see your face Though I try I can't believe that you are gone There's a part of you That's a part of me And no matter where I go It comes along Reminding me of all the good sort of an epilogue type song isn't it it's a goodbye it's a party yeah we both know right. that doyle is desperately trying to get rid of the responsibility with this character the, the the public pressure to keep writing these stories but hey he comes back doesn't he he does i kind of feel that for the propagandic purposes the other song might have been um 
a long way to Tipperary. Yes, I, I did get that point before the music started, and uh, yeah, go on out and listen to that. It's yeah. it's a good one as well. You know what though? It's it's more historically important, I think, maybe. But hey, Dusty Springfield, you never complain about hearing her voice, do you? No, nah, she's not bad at all. She's not bad. Well, look, buddy, that's episode 18, almost in the wraps. Any final comments on his last bow? This was a quicker read for us. We we did this collection in two episodes, thanks to the uh, duplication of the cardboard box, historically speaking, at least. We didn't have to deal with it here this time around, and we only had seven stories in total. That's right, and we did like, I think we did like four stories each for each one, and then... Uh, well, for the first book, I think the first episode we did on it, we did four stories, and then we went to like three, I guess, to round it all out, right? So, yeah, and uh, yeah, it just seems like that's true. That's exactly what we did. Yeah, four and four and three. So there you go. That's us in the wraps. Next up is our yet to be uh, programmed, yet to be produced, yet to be planned live show, or at least there will be a, there at least there will be a live component to it. Yeah, there'll be. We'll go over the details and figure something out. It, it, it'll probably be something just really s- silly but fun. You know? ah, yeah. it, it, good yeah. listening. Good listening. Yeah, don't bring your uh, don't bring your critical your um, your acumen, you know, with you to to this particular show. Ah, okay. Well, <laughs> well, no, I, I I think it's okay to bring that. But but uh, I mean, what what don't what hold us to, to it. Re- what, what, yeah, but what are you going to be like talking about? Like, Re, re reviewing did you, did you want to discuss like did you want to do like um so far the best book so far or something along those lines we, we can did do you... a little we can do a little standalone yeah if you want to move away yeah. from our from our our mythology or we can maybe do just a you know one story at the pub we just go through it with a couple of beers you know recorded at connor's yeah we can definitely we could definitely do that because, because all you got to do is record it from your iphone i guess or no i've got voice recorders my son i got all sorts not to worry but how? But how do you get the pub? How do you get that planted in the pub, though? Do you have like a? What do you mean? It's, uh, what do you mean? How do you get it? No, oh. no, it's portable. Oh yeah, portable. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah. You put it on okay. the table and talk away. Oh, there you go. Yeah, we could definitely do that. Although I will, I will uh, give you the news that O'Connor's been gone for a long time. Oh shit. Okay. What's the next? <laughs> what's the next best place in the Centrum? Uh, there's a couple places in Canada that we can go to. Um, also. Um, I may also, and I'll also be off Maryville Road with my, my apartment as well. So, I mean, there, there'll be some places down, there's a lot of places around there too. There's like the Barley Mow down the street, uh, Local Heroes, um, a, couple, a couple of places there actually. Right, well, I'll, I'll leave it in your capable hands then. You, mm-hmm. can, you can plan the venue for our, uh, our live show. Yeah, absolutely. And behind the scenes, we'll get, uh, we'll get a program in order. Anyway, it was fun. It was quicker than normal, but uh, definitely, definitely worthwhile. And I think we did these three stories real good service. I think we did too. Uh, bra- bra- bravo to both of us, and uh, tally ho, tally ho.